have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. fraud, COVID, pandemic, lockdowns, inflation, crop shortage, toilet paper shortage. It's crazy. If you're worried about the future, I really don't blame you. Millions of Americans are wondering what to do. How do you hedge your bed? How do you protect yourself and your family? Well, Americans are quietly stocking up on emergency food, shouldn't you? So ask yourself, do you currently have enough food on hand to get you through the next month? If not, you should strongly consider getting a four-week emergency food kit from My Patriot Supply. They're the nation's number one prepared this company, and their mission is your survival. They've served millions of American families, and they will be honored to serve you too. So right now, you can save $50 off their four-week emergency food kit, which comes with breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, and even snacks. This food gives you a minimum requirement of 2,000 calories per day, and the special packaging keeps it fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. You can't go wrong. So head on over to preparewithsouthernsense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit at this special price. You'll save $50 per kit if you act now. So if you're on my website listening to this show, go up to the top corner and you'll see my smiling face on the left-hand side where it says prepare. Click on that link to My Patriot Food. Or... 
you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. Be prepared. All right, and you're here listening live to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, all of that. Global Entertainment Network, and oh, good Lord, I don't even know half the places I am anymore. <laughs> oh, I do know I'm up on iHeartRadio, too. Uh, anyway, I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the radio tickety any, along with my co-host who's probably rolling on the floor in laughter at this moment, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, it's always good to be back. Um, I'm gearing up for uh, uh, for, for tour. Um, venture here starting next Tuesday, following all the way through the next Monday at your place. I got like four major events in a one week period. So I'm looking wow. forward to it. Uh, my co host is a star. Oh my goodness, he's someone famous. <laughs> <laughs> I just know I'm on the hey, road listen. a lot. <laughs> Well, listen, you know, I, I, it's been a crazy, crazy week here this week with uh, me. I, I've been running around like a chicken with its head cut off, or as I like to say, I'm busier than a one-armed paper hanger. Um, I had to run to the grocery store, and I was really surprised on how empty a lot of the shelves were. And for the last couple of weeks, there's been stories trickling in about all these cargo-laden vessels sitting outside in California, um, and New York, and something like half a million vessels are sitting there, and they've been sitting there for more, some of them more than two weeks, full of cargo, stuff for our shelves, for our grocery shelves. I went, I, I broke my shoes, so I went to buy a new pair of shoes for you know, church on Sunday. I go to the women's section in the store, and it, it, it's, it was like empty. I mean, even a pair of shoes you can't get. So I got home, and I started thinking about this, and I'm going, okay, time for Ann to do something. And I shot off to uh, my two state senators and my state representative, uh, asking them to approach my governor, Henry McMasters, who's a Republican, and he's part of that group of 27 Republicans that uh, signed that uh, thing with uh, uh, Greg Abbott in the, uh, on the border for border security. Mm. And I said, why don't he, he get together with these other 27 and break the bottleneck? Tell the vessels to come to their ports. And if you're in a, one of the interstates without a port, you know, offer to send, you know, uh, National Guard troops, uh, trucks, whatever we need to get those vessels opened up, get, get the cargo off of there to the distribution centers, to the warehouses, to the manufacturers, whoever needs this, all these things that are on these, these vessels sitting out there, just, just sitting at sea with nothing to do. So why don't we mobilize? Yeah. Why don't we do what Americans do best, innovate, think outside the box? Why yeah, are we having everything come through those... Yeah, through New York and California. I made an observation about a week and a half ago when I was at Walmart, and I was in their um, meat section, and the, the, the number of shelves that were empty, you know, I, I had to say something to my cousin. You know, I said, I've never seen it like this before. And 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 when you went up and down some of the other aisles with the non-perishable food, there were plenty of empty shelves. It, it was like something out of a movie. And it just didn't seem like 
you know, what I was used to here in America. So there is well, a, you know, that, something going on. Well, it also goes to prove how much we depend upon China for our goods and services. How much comes out of them? Because Walmart is a prime example. I, I've been daring anyone to walk into Walmart, turn something over, and, so, and show me where it was not made in China, something made in the USA. But you're not going to find that. So you're better off going uh, shopping for food and things like that at your local store. Like for us, it's Food Line. I know they get all their produce locally. Um, I went into Food Line. Even they had some of the shelves, you know, had empty, but not as bad as you saw in Wally World. Well, anyway, we're going to get into all that a little bit later on into the show. I want to welcome everyone that's popping into our chat room. See some people who I haven't seen here in a while. Welcome aboard. We're also up on uh, Facebook as well as YouTube also. I'll check in on those pages as we go along. We've got a, a show that is really jam-packed. Uh, we have Gretchen Wallet. She wrote a book which is rather interesting, and you know, I, this is something I kind of recognize but never really delved into it. She delved all the way into this. Uh, it's called Born to Fight, Lincoln and Trump, and she compares uh, President Lincoln as he was growing up and as he entered the presidency and so forth uh, to President Trump. Now, thankfully, there's certain differences, like Trump is still very much alive, uh, so you know, we'll be talking to her about that. Uh, we have also Matt Rosenberg. His new book out is What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. And this was also very interesting because there's a lot of things the media is not telling you that is going on out there in places like New York, Chicago, L.A. And he delves into what's going on and what's wrong. And then we're going to have back Dean Reuter. Uh He was with us when his book came out, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. He is the general counsel at the Federalist Society for, uh, for Law and Public Policy. So there's a bunch going on dealing with that. Then we have Larry Clayman. He's been on in the past. His book is It Takes a Revolution to Get the Scandal Industry. Uh, he's the current chairman of Freedom Watch. And he's been convening these citizen grand juries. And, oh, my goodness, wow, what a, what a bunch to work with. And then Heritage Foundation this week is sending David Ditch. He's a policy analyst of the Grover M. Harriman Center for the Federal Budget. Did I just say a mouthful for the federal budget that the Senate is allowing the debt ceiling to rise on? Oh, we have so much to talk about today, Curtis. And boy, is this gem-filled day today, is it not? It is. Definitely is. Um, we got these 11 Republicans who went along with this increase. It's, it's crazy, you know. We don't stand together, but the Democrats do. Uh, that That is so very true. As a matter of fact... Um, I finally officially filed the censure for Lindsey Graham because when he voted it out of committee, we felt he should never have voted it out of committee. He was one of the ones that got the ball rolling for the Democrats to reach this point. So hmm. uh, Aiken's uh, Republican Party here in South Carolina censured him. Pickens' Republican Party censured him. Our state GOP 
sent a demand and explain letter to him that we're waiting for him to answer. And so now my Tea Party has also officially filed the censure. So I sent it not only to um, uh, the other Tea Parties, but I've also sent it over to all the local papers. So hopefully they'll print it. Um, my final thing is to take it and physically mail it to his office, uh, which I'm sure they'll be laughing their butts off. Going, <laughs> That's right. I get to have the last laugh. Right? Anyway. Um, yeah. Those that listen, listen to the show know that we start off each and every one with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going out to, to police officer Eric Huston Talley of the Boulder Police Department in Colorado. His end of watch was Monday, March 22nd. And the officer down memorial page just reads very plainly, Police officer Eric Talley was shot and killed at about 2.30 p.m. while responding to an active shooter incident at the King Supers grocery store, 3600 Table Mesa Drive. Officer Talley was the first officer to arrive at the scene and was shot as he engaged the gunman. The subject was taken into custody a short time later after being wounded. The subject murdered a total of 10 people including Officer Talley during the incident. Officer Talley had served with the Boulder Police Department for 11 years. He survived by his wife, seven children, and parents. This is by Blair Miller, and it appeared at the Denver, Denver Channel. And she writes, Boulder Police Officer Eric Talley was a devout Catholic, a former IT professional who became a police officer after the death of a friend, a kind and funny man who loved board games, loved helping solve other people's problems, flying drones and Star Wars, and above all, Tally was a loving son, husband, and father to seven children who was their unsung hero, those who knew him said at a memorial service in Boulder. Family members were joined by thousands of police officers, firefighters, and paramedics from across the region, people from the community, and others to honor Tally in a procession and memorial service at Flat Irons Community Church in Boulder, eight days after he was shot and killed at King Supers in Boulder. Tally was the first officer to respond to the shooting and died heroically protecting others. Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold and others said, Nine civilians were killed at the store along with Tally. A suspect has been charged with first-degree murder and attempted murder in the shooting. A funeral mass was held for Tally at the Cathedral Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in Denver. During the service, Reverend Daniel Nolan, FSSP of Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church, said Tally would not have wanted the service to proceed had he not had the Mass on Monday 1st. His faith was first and foremost, primary. He was an officer, a husband, a father, Nolan said. But at core, he was a Catholic. He believed it to the core of his being. 
It was his deeply held beliefs that enabled him to do what he did, to lay down his life for another, even though those friends were the ones he never met. Nolan said that service was for Tally's friends and family, along with all of the hundreds of law enforcement in attendance. Everyone in that store was trying to get out, but some were trying to get in. It was all of you, officers, lawmen, law enforcement, going into the mouth of hell, and one did not return. This is for you, he said. This is a risk every day you put on your badges. Officer Talley put on his badge, put on his uniform, not knowing that it would be the last time. That's a frightening prospect for every officer every day. May your fears, may your trepidations be allayed, knowing your sacrifice will not be taken for granted. Nolan went on to discuss the power it took for Tally to sacrifice his life for others, saying it meant there was an idea, a principle, a character in the soul worth dying for. It's a message that the world does not hear very often, does not see very often. He believed in something so strongly he was willing to die for it, Nolan said. I would argue Officer Talley's life was not taken. It was given. He gave it. It was love that enabled Officer Talley to do this. He loved his fellow man. It was because he loved his family. He loved our Lord. Nolan read a poem written by Tally's seven children for him on Christmas 2019 called Our Unsung Hero, which reads in part, Dad, our unsung hero, who guards and guides our way, we love you, we thank you on this Christmas day. May the angels watch over you and guard you on your way. May God bless and protect you and bring you home each day. Tally's mother and father have said in interviews over the past weeks that their son, who grew up in Albuquerque, was a brave man of integrity and faith. Boulder P- Police Chief Maris Herald said, Tally's top trait was optimism and said everyone who knew him knew about his optimism for the future. She remembered him as a dedicated police officer who loved his chance to be a drone operator loved his family, and never complained about his job with the department, which he took after a career in information technology at the age of 41, following the death of a close friend. Harold said she has received an outpouring of support from community members who had interactions with Officer Talley over the years and described how compassionate he was when it came to interacting with people in crisis missing person cases, and saving a family of ducks, among many other calls. Tally was energetic, a black belt in karate, and loved board games immensely. Chief Harold, a fellow officer and a friend of his, said, he had more than 450 board and card games that he loved to share with his family, friends, and fellow officers. He was also fond of telling others how much better the Star Wars franchise is than that of Star Trek. And they laughed. Harold and a fellow officer recalled giving Tally's son 
a life-saving award for helping save his brother and spoke to his several children, saying that their father was kind and died a hero. There is no doubt because of his bravery and quick action, dozens of lives were saved, she said. I hope this brings solace to you all in the years ahead. Eric's life meant something. He was everything I think about when I think about excellence in policing. Eric was kind. Eric was brave. And in the end, willing to die to save others, Harold added. The Boulder Police Department will never forget Eric or his sacrifice. Boulder Police Chief Sergeant, Boulder Police Sergeant Adrian Drells, who was Tally's direct supervisor and friend, said Tally would have wanted others recognized before himself. He told Tally's wife, Leah Tally, that she was the love of Eric's life, his rock, and what kept him grounded every day. To the kids, all seven of you, hold your heads high. I see your dad's compassion and kindness in each of you. He is a hero. He lived his life through God to be a role model to you, Drill said. Your police family will always be here to support and love you. He also spoke to Tally's parents and to the other victims of the shooting, telling them he promised that the police department and investigators would continue to work around the clock to bring you justice. Drellis thanked Boulder police officers, dispatchers, and other first responders, as well as those from other area agencies who have been so supportive of the BPD since the day of the shooting. Remembered Tally as a man of great character who left his mark because of the life he lived. He said Tally was a talkaholic, but also extremely hardworking, who was enthusiastic about his life and job and wanted to share that vibrancy with the world. Andrellis commended Tally's work on the day on which he died, saying that from the time that Tally first confronted the suspect, no other civilians were hurt at the King Supers. Eric died a hero, giving his all to save others. He was with his brothers in blue. Do not be dismayed by the brokenness of the world, he said. Eric, I am honored to work by your side. You were a great officer, friend, husband. You're probably rolling your eyes as I speak. We have your back and will continue to work where you left off. Tally's close friend, Chris Turner, told the service that Tally was always searching for new and fun games to play. And along with that passion for games, he also cherished his other hobbies, included being a drone operator. But Turner said that those hobbies were a conduit to make new friends and spend time with those he cared for. Turner said Tally gave 100% of himself to every friendship and was always among the first to respond to help people with computers, moving, tracking down livestock, anything. He said that Tally greatly cherished trips and camps with his family and gave dedicated time to his children for activities. There was nothing on earth more important to Eric than his family, Turner said. He had this ability to have people feel better about themselves. Colorado Governor Jared Polis 
said he wished he had known Tally after all he has heard over the past week of his character and commitment to his family and community. The governor said that Coloradans will never forget him. For those he knew well, it's going to be the quiet moments and the feeling that the world might have moved on, Polis said. But those who loved him most will never be alone. We will never forget the sacrifices he made and the sacrifices your family has made. I speak for the entire state of Colorado when I say we are here for you. At the end of the ceremony, Chief Harold was presented an American flag that was draped over Tally's casket and then presented it in turn to Officer Tally's family to honor and remember him. Tally was also honored, honored with a 21-gun salute, the playing of chaps, and a final call. Officer Eric Talley, you brought hope and light where there was despair and darkness. You sowed joy into the throes of sadness. On March 22 at 1430 hours, you ran to confront people, not only because you wore the badge with honor, because you wore the honor of God with courage. As a son, husband, father, and officer, you upheld justice, loved kindness, and walked humbly with our God. Final hail for 295. Officer Eric Talley, end of watch, March 22, 2021, at 20.09 hours. 295, you are released for end of watch. Well done. Good and faithful service. We have the watch from here. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Carey. It's also dedicated to all of the brave men and women who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve in our military, from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We dedicate this song by Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
it to me They believe in the virtues I stand for I respect for humanity Now I'm challenged by tyrants Who envy my power But they're vicious deep Because I find it Media, Global Enlightenment Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart, Facebook. Uh, oh, good Lord. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle. Southern-sense.com. Of course, you know I'm the hostess with the least mostest, the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And we've got our first victim in the studio. So I want to welcome to the show for the first time Gretchen Woolert. She's the author of Born to Fight, Lincoln and Trump. Good afternoon, Gretchen. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. It is absolutely our pleasure. As a matter of fact, you also have your own podcast on Spotify, don't you? Uh, yes. Yes, I do. It's it's uh, uh, kind of just beginning, just starting out, but yeah, I, I've got some stuff there. Well, I have a link where people click on your name on the show page as they're listening to this. Even if they're listening in the archives, it'll take them to your Spotify. And if they click on the link with the the name of the book, it'll take them to your books. They can buy your book while they're listening to your podcast. How's that sound? Oh, wonderful. That would be great. I have no ego. I don't mind promoting someone else. Um, To be honest, I haven't been able to read the entire book, so I started it off. And I was so frenzied over the last couple of days, I left the notes on the other computer. So the other computer is in the other room. So I'm going to be doing this off the top of my head. But, you know, something I noticed um, through President Trump's uh, administration, 
there were certain similarities, but there's also glaring differences. And I, I didn't really pay too much attention. It's just like little things I noticed. And someone every once in a while would mention the name of Lincoln. But when I picked up your book, you made everything just fall right into place. It's like, uh-huh. I felt that in the back of my mind, but you were able to put it down on paper. Do you get that from a lot of people? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so many people, you know, knew, well, there are there are these things about Donald Trump, but they couldn't really put their finger on it. And what I did was I spent four years researching and connecting, making all of these connections, 10 chapters worth, and um, just putting them into a book. And it, it really is amazing how in so many ways Trump and Lincoln are alike. And you're right, there are glaring differences, and there are some of those differences in the book, but it's mostly about the similarities, not just in in um, things like how they approach church and their faith, but also how they are straight talkers and, and men of the people, how they keep it real, how they lead um, the different things that are so similar in their visions and their courage, and they both were actually precocious and very obstinate kids. And there are just so many similarities in so many areas of their life, but also in their presidencies and especially in the divided time that we are in right now and the divided time that Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, his administration, of course, was the Civil War. And my last chapter in, is called Signs of the Times. And we actually are living in two Americas. And the one that that prevails and fights the hardest is actually the one that we're going to leave to our children. And we need to pay attention to that. Um, take it from Abraham Lincoln and Donald Trump. We need to learn how to fight. You know, I just had a, a little bit of a back and forth on a text uh, just before coming on air. And I've always said politics starts off locally. And we have an election coming up. No one's paying attention to it November second, this next month. And for here in my county, there's two referendums on the ballot: one that will steal our vote, and one that will steal our wallet. And I've been trying to get people together to do like a sign waving, to send letters to the editor, uh, and just do anything and everything to get the word out there. And everyone's like, "Well, no one's paying attention." Well, that's all the more reason why we have to pay attention and get into the fight. We have to be active, which is what, you know, the call Lincoln put out and the call that Trump is is putting out. Stay in the fight and stay in the action. You know, one thing about Republicans and conservatives is they're not used to fighting as tough and especially not dirty like the Democrats fight um, because we have morals and we have ethics, and they are not bound by truth or ethics or any of that. But, yes, we're not used to fighting. We're not used to, you know, absolutely sticking in there. We believe that our votes count. We're going to fight with our vote. But the reason the Democrats are putting forth all of these um, referendums, and you're right, it is on local levels, and they're they're just not paid as close attention to. But, you know, the... The illegitimacy of the Biden administration is based on they used they used so many nefarious means in order to take votes away from legitimate people, and there are a lot of votes that were connected that, that weren't connected to anybody. 
and they want to continue that because that is how they will keep winning because it has nothing to do with what's right or what's true. It has everything to do with how can they get their way, and they will do it by stealing the vote and making sure that that legitimate votes aren't aren't legitimate anymore um, just just by the things that they're going to try to put through. You know, Abraham Lincoln identified the Democrats in several ways. He said, evil can't stand discussion. What kills the skunk is the publicity it gives itself. What a skunk wants to do is stay hidden under the barn when men are around with shotguns. And Lincoln labeled labeled the other side skunks because he called them out and that's when things really began to stink and when the when the fight was the toughest and Donald Trump the same way he called out the democrats and the liberal left for what they were doing and they have been hidden under the barn for a long time but he called them out and now I don't think they even care to affect public opinion because they plan to steal elections from this point on well, that's the sad part, because we inherited Stacey Abrams. When she lost in Georgia, she decided to settle here. So she's got her headquarters just north of me in Charleston, and she's got her hands, one up in Columbia, one here, to try to turn South Carolina from red into a blue state. Not even to purple. She's trying to turn it completely blue. And uh, we're on to her, but uh, we've already been saying, all right, we've identified her tactics We've identified where she's aiming for, and we're aiming above her to cut her off. So we'll see what we come up with, because election integrity is a big issue here. And we've already corralled the uh, president of the Senate and the uh, majority leader in the House on our state capitol, and said, your legislation is flawed, and this is why it's flawed. This is where we need to tighten it up. So you got to be proactive, which is basically what the two of them are calling out to. But one century before, one now, saying, you know, you can't sit still. You've got to be called to action, whether it's at the voting Absolutely. or or being active with your elected official, getting your issues out there in front of them. You know, it, it, you have to do something. You can't sit anymore in your Archie Bunker chair, yell at the TV, and expect the world to change. And it, it's not going to happen. Absolutely. And you know what? Yeah, we need to. It, it begins on the local level, school boards. So many school boards out there, and parents are just uh, baffles my mind how so many parents just allow them to make all these decisions for their children and really bad decisions in a lot of cases. But but your your city councils and your your state legislatures it's it's a tough fight. You've got to stay in the fight. Even even just starting to speak up to your neighbor. So many people don't want to. You know, Republicans tend to be law abiding and and oh, we don't want to offend them. We want to, don't want to say things to their face. But this this is a battle for the future of America and for our children. Do we want a free America? Do we want one with hardworking Americans who believe in those foundational freedoms, true history, and respect for our flag, strength, and prosperity? Or, like the liberals want, globalists, anti-American haters of traditional values, apologetic, weak America, elites lording over the masses is what the Democrats want to do. And we've got to fight that. We, we want freedom in America, and we want it for our children. Correct. Well, you know, 
Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I was just going to say you're right about um, some of us wanting to, you know, sit around the campfire and, and sing kumbaya with with liberals as though they're going to like us. Uh, I speak a lot at different uh, Republican clubs and and um, other, like, tea parties and things. And along the way, I find people who really don't want me to speak anything bad about the Democrat Party because they don't want to offend nobody. And I can't understand that because their side, they're in a war mode. You know, they they want to um, bury us and deeper than six feet. And our side, we have people who just want to get along with them and show them how nice we are and that we're not bigoted, you know, racist um, people. Um, what are your Absolutely. thoughts? Absolutely. And we need to change that. Donald Trump showed us that you've got to stand up and fight. You've got to get in their face. We're not used to it. It takes it takes practice. It takes getting over that niceness. You know, this is not a time for nice. This is a time for uh, just fighting. Um, take take a, a lesson from Lincoln. He knew who he was fighting. It's the same adversary that we are fighting today. And he called them mobocrats, uh, terms he used for the Democrat Party. And we could say that today. You've, we've got to know who we're fighting. He also called them indirectly evil and skunks and and as soon as we realize how how mean and nasty is our enemy and it is the democrat party we've got to to face them and we've got to face them truthfully and not think that we're because we're going to be nice to them they're uh -uh, they don't even think that way they just take advantage every possible way they can so yes Take, take a lesson from Lincoln. They are skunks. Uh, they have been called out from under the barn, and we need to quit being so nice. Absolutely. Matter of fact, uh, the bumper sticker that's been on my car, and no one's damaged my car, thankfully, uh, it's a picture of Trump waving, and it says, making liberals cry since 2016. <laughs> so... I just had some more bumper stickers made up. So when I do get them in, I'm going to offer them to my listeners if they want, to, want one of the bumper stickers. But we, we've got to be honest. Look what they have done to these parents going to the school board meetings, calling them domestic terrorists, moms and dads that are just worried about their kids, what's being taught to their kids, whether or not they have to wear a mask the entire time, because it does damage the children. I'm sorry, they can't breathe. The kid has autism or if they have a, a breathing disorder like asthma, wearing that mask is not healthy all day. And if the parents are there just defending their children, saying no critical race theory here, you're labeled a domestic terrorism and the FBI gets sicked on you? Come on. This has gone too far, hasn't it? Have they wake, woken the, oh, the sleeping giant yes, now? Absolutely. And yeah, we, you know what? What, what, I'm sorry, the absurdity of the left knows no bounds. And Republicans and conservatives and those on the right, they need to understand that. There is, there is you know, you can't question, well, how absurd is this? This is just awful. Well, it's, it's going to keep getting worse. And Abraham Lincoln, during his time, he called him out for hypocrisy, for everything. Same thing Donald Trump called the left out. And, and truly, Trump doesn't really understand how 
how so many Americans and Republicans don't realize how terrible and how how the left is fighting so dirty. Of course, we learned that the swamp is actually much smellier and deeper than we ever thought. But Donald Trump first said, you know, that's what it is. It's a swamp. We kind of knew that. But but the absurdity of the left knows no bounds. They will they will just keep getting because nothing makes sense in their world. Nothing works um, legitimately in in life that they actually believe in. It it just doesn't work. Socialism. They're wanting to go there. I don't know why. Because where in the world has it ever worked? And it it just is completely absurd. And we need to. We need to fight it. We've got to stand and fight. And I, Donald Trump continues to fight. I, I don't believe it's over. I call um, his administration his first administration because I think there may be another. And we cannot discount him. The left has not been able to completely squash him or destroy him. He bounces back. And, you know, there is, there is a leader who has, has shown us how a person can fight. Yes, he, you know, he did some things that a lot of us didn't like, but he was fighting for the people. He was fighting for traditional America, for the the America that we want, where there's freedom, and we're actually fighting for our history. And Donald Trump knew that if you don't have history, then you can deny it. And that's what the Democrats do. They try to destroy history, destroy um, all the things that that tell people what is real and true about, you know, capitalism and America and freedom um, because they want something completely different and it is not good. No, it's not. It's not. Because Marx was the one that said you, if you destroy history, then there's nothing for them to, to gauge you by and you can get away with anything. That was his basic ideal, is which exactly what they're doing, rewriting history. The perfect example is critical race theory. The 1619 Project, rewrite the history and make it seem, make it the way you think it should be, not the way it actually was. And history is not black and white. There's a lot of gray areas in there. And we, we're all human. We make mistakes. Yes, slavery was bad, but our founding fathers put the mechanisms in place that brought around the abolitionist movement. They knew it was going to be a fight, but they had to kick the can down the road a little bit just to get the nation established. You know, the premises that they throw out there are absurd. But if you also look at what are their motives, why are they doing this? Now, Merrick Garland sucked. That sucked. Sick the FBI on the parents, telling them you're domestic terrorists. Then when you look back, what was his motivation? His son-in-law, who owns an education company, they founded an education company that sells all the crap that teaches critical race theory and all the other mumbo jumbo. So yeah, it's lining his pocket along the way. Why not? So you have to look at what is the motivation. Who is behind it? Where's the money? Follow the Benjamins is the best way to put it. Just follow the Benjamins. Yes, and, we'll and you see know who's what? Behind e- exactly. The left, the left has no interest. Whatever they may say, uh, I, I just always I know. Okay, what is their ulterior motive? It has it never has anything to do with what is good for the people. So so that that is is never a part of their agenda. They have actually uh, two guiding principles. 
one of them is the end always justifies the means, and the other guiding principle is exhaust your opposition by never conceding loss or failure. And that's, that's, how, they, that's how they win. They lie all the time. It never is the truth. In fact, most of the time, it's, it's, if they're accusing somebody else, it actually, it's projection. It's what they are doing themselves. And using euphemisms like critical race theory, they don't know the first thing about uh, critical about race because they are the racist party. And if, you know, if people would, would realize the truth, but they are good at lying. They are good at messaging. They're good at deceiving. All of those really skunkish things that Abraham Lincoln identified 150 years ago, it is still the party of slavery. That's the, that's the ironic part. And when you have Black Lives Matter being born into this movement, you know, you're, go, you're going directly to who your masters were and following what they're telling you to do. You have the one woman that, uh, that was in charge of Black Lives Matter, which is a Marxist-based organization, made so much money she was able to buy three mansions. Come on, like I said, you, you follow the motivation, find out what is behind it. And then you end up finding out things about this Biden administration. And he put in uh, this woman, McKeeson, who was a black power activist into the Department of Education. You've got to be kidding me. Haven't we been screaming enough about critical race theory that you put a black power activist in charge of the Department of Ed? Is, is, are they completely tone deaf, or are they just completely ignoring us and hoping that we'll just shut up and go away? That's exactly it. They hope that we will just shut up and go away. But, you know, the absurdity of Democrats and the left, it knows no bounds. They will continue to do more and more things. In Lincoln's day, it was the absurdity of of the Democrats wanting to put slavery was so good, they said, we need to put it into the northern factories. And Lincoln just flat, if he wasn't there, if Lincoln had not stood up, they would have just just railroaded slavery into, I believe, the entire United States. But because he stood up and said enough, similar that when Donald Trump stood up and said enough, you know, for four years, we we kind of had, had respite from from the absurd direction that the Democrats were taking this nation, and we need to get that back. We need to fight. We've got to get in their face. We need to separate the D for Democrat in so many people's minds that they are they have any good in mind for the people because they do not, and it, it just needs that message has got to go out there, and it's got to be done by courageous and brave people because the left has cancel culture. They will do seek to destroy and but you know one thing they always underestimate they always underestimate god's role in our nation and in abraham lincoln's day he realized that you know the almighty had purposes that were higher than what everybody else believed and and you know we just need to to honor that and believe that that we can fight and we can have the courage and we just need to do it and trust that God has a plan for this nation that has nothing to do with what the Democrats want. 
No. And I think that the main heartbeat of America is starting to beat again because people are getting pissed. They're saying, all right, enough is enough. And when you have this many parents coming to a school board meeting, no wonder why they're frightened because they have been made aware that we know what you're up to. I mean, I went to the last school board meeting, and I was, and I don't have kids, but I am a taxpayer. I pay the school taxes. So I want to know where my money's going and what's going on, and I will support the parents that go in there, and I'll have their back. I went to speak at the previous meeting, and a friend of mine pulled me aside and goes, do you know that they were snickering behind your back while you were talking? And I said, no. And as soon as I started speaking again, they started snickering, and I went after them tooth and nail. And I said, you snicker at any one of us. You snicker at all of us. And we're coming now for your seat. And the ones that did not chastise you for snickering, you're next. And the ones that did, we thank you, and we'll have your back. But we're coming for you. We are coming for your seats. And that's what we have to tell them. It's enough. Uh -uh. We pay you. You don't pay us. Absolutely. And in, it, it all comes down to election integrity because if the left can continue to, to you know, make it so that votes are no longer verified, that's, that's how they won 2020 is because they used the pandemic. They had, have no interest in what is right for people and for America. They just want to get their own way. And this administration is, is – as illegitimate as the Southern Confederacy, I believe. And it all has to do with election integrity. If they don't believe that they need to even convince people to vote for them because they have found another way in order to win by cheating, um, we just have to get on the ball. All of conservatives and Republicans have to get in there. Election integrity is absolutely at the base of will we be able to take back seats. It's not just the messaging. We've got to fight and get in their face, but it is about fixing the ability to cheat in elections or making it easier for ballots to come in that are not verified or even connected necessarily to a real person. Well, were you in on the meeting last night that I sat in last night? We had a Zoom meeting of uh, precinct leaders with our, our chair of our local GOP, that's exactly what the entire hour and a half was about, exactly that. A friend of mine, she went and broke down the Maricopa and the Georgia elections and their, their audits and identified all the problems that was not talked about that were in the reports and then identified the problems in the reports. And they went and looked at the legislation that has been stalled in our state house and Senate and found all the problems in that, and then identified the problems that we had here in our elections, including ballot harvesting and verifying signatures. And they were able to put together and gather up all the faulty legislation, sit down with the House and Senate leaders, identify all these problems, and got them to rewrite the legislation, and it's on the front burner as soon as they resume in January. And that I'm telling you that because I want people to know you can do it. You've got to get involved, and you can do it. If this one woman and her husband were able to break this down so wonderfully, and I mean 
beautiful PowerPoint presentation that just made it so easy to understand. Anyone can do it because the information is out there. You just got to take the time and do the work. Yes, it, it, you've got to get out, fight. You've got to fight. And, and, you know, Lincoln and Trump, they were fighters like no other. I believe the most aggressive Republican-American fighters in history. Um, and, and they fought such a huge battle. Of course, Abraham Lincoln fought the Civil War. He, and, and there, was no, there was no room for compromise in the middle. And actually, Abraham Lincoln, um, there was there was no room even to to come up with a peace agreement. He said, "No, there is going to be no peace without victory. We have to completely conquer this enemy because what they want is something that America should not be. It was not founded on sla- on on slavery. It was founded on the proposition." that all men are created equal, and you are so right. You know, one war at a time, we had to win the Revolutionary War, and we needed the help of those southern colonies to do it. And so slavery and abolition had to wait. But during the Civil War, it, it, that was the fight, and that was when it ended. And Abraham Lincoln did not unify the nation in, in a happy sense. He had to conquer the enemy in order to do it. And everybody needs to realize that. He was such a unifier, yes, but he destroyed the South in or, before he could do it. So fighting your enemy, we have got to get that into us. They are mean and nasty and dirty tricks come out from everywhere. As Lincoln said, they are skunks come out from under the barn. But one thing they tend to do is they overplay their hand. And as long as we can continue to call them out, call out the hypocrisy. Don't be afraid of not being nice. Yeah, they'll say, oh, they'll call you all sorts of names. You've got to fight. We've got to fight, especially for that election integrity, because without that, you know, our vote does not count. Our vote will not count, and they will continue to cheat because they are not bound <clears throat> by ethics or morality. Gretchen. No, they're not. Yeah, well, yeah Curtis, the, we, got, we have a minute left. I say the ammunition that they gave me more recently, and I'm talking about the left, is that when I talk to these people about the vaccines and whatnot, and they look at me as though, you know, I'm the bad guy and I'm the reason why there's a problem. I say, well, you know, the reason why I'm not taking it, one of the reasons, the same reasons why your your um, leaders exempted themselves, you know? I mean, what do they know that you guys don't know? <laughs> that's all that's one to way say. to put it. Is it? <laughs> that's, that's one way to put it. That is absolutely. But, you know, they're trying to silence us, and that perfect example was that one alleged whistleblower testifying before Congress this past week, and all they wanted was another way to find a way to censure us. And there's so much more to talk about, about how they're fighting us and how we need to have, fight right on back. Because a lot of people have yeah, been Yeah, they count on us minding our manners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what instead, social networks are, for conservatives are springing up by the hundreds. So we're finding new ways to get our voices out there and still heard. Uh, finding other news uh, stations like One American News and Newsmax rather than listening to the Fox with the same thing over and over and over again. You know, we're finding uh, websites like 
getter and gab and things like that, that the swamp doesn't want to go there because they know we own that turf. But Gretchen, it has been a great, great pleasure having you with us today. Thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. All right. And as I said, if they click on your name, it'll take them to your Spotify podcast. And your book is Born to Fight, Lincoln and Trump. I recommend everyone pick it up because it may give you the courage to get off of that Archie Bunker chair and get into the fight. God bless you, Gretchen. And you, thank you so much. All right. Great, great guest. Oh, man. We're waiting for uh, Curtis to bring on our next one. Um, but as I said, yeah, we, we have to get back into the fight. You know, they're, they're finding any and every way to come at us. They've called us racists. They've called us uh, domestic terrorists. We still have the January 6th sitting behind bars. Uh, and yet you had this kid over in Arlington, Texas, shoot up the school, and he's out within hours after being arrested, making bail, not even 24 hours behind bars on a, on a measly, measly little tiny bail. No, 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 no. I suppose it's supposed to be equal protection under the law. You got these still sitting there behind bars on January 6th, and they didn't shoot anything up. They didn't hurt anyone. But that's what they're doing. And Curtis, it looks like you forgot to unmute our guest here. Let's Bring four. him press on. Three. To continue recording where you left oh. off, press four. Oh, I guess uh, we lost our next guest. So you left a message, Curtis? Yes, I did. I got a voicemail. Oh, okay. All right, well, I've got tons of other stuff here. Let me go through my little packet here. And... Uh, just bear with me for a second. It's just going through all my paperwork here. Oh, have you heard this one? This uh, I'm sorry. Anyone out there live in Pennsylvania? If you do, you've got a legislator, legislator out there by the last name of Rob. Rob Rab, Rab R A B B. This this catch this Curtis. There's a whole to? abortion. We we've got this whole abortion pro life pro-choice debate going on, and the Supreme Court's supposed to be taking up another case dealing with that soon. This guy came up with a, a genius idea. So, you know, it's, it's a reproductive issue. It's not just a woman's issue. It's a reproductive issue. So what he did was he drafted this legislation that will force men to have a vasectomy if they've had three children or reach the age of 40, whichever comes first. How do you like the sound of that? I, I Did you don't. say ouch? <laughs> <laughs> Did you just say ouch? And what, what is the purpose? What is, well, is, what is he trying to get at? Well, he says, as long as legislators continue to restrict the reproductive rights of cis women, trans men, and non-binary, whatever, folks, F-O-L-X, is, <laughs> there should be laws to it. There's a new gender. I didn't know. I didn't know there's a new gender wow. out there. There should be laws to address the responsibility of men who impregnate them. So 
if you reach the age of 40 or if you have three children already, whichever comes first, they're going to snip you. And if you don't get snipped, they're going to pay someone a $10,000 reward to rat you out because you were not snipped. Ouch. Men, if you live in Pennsylvania, run, run. And it looks like our guest did call in. want to welcome on. Whoa. Are you in a car, Matt? Yeah, this is Matt Rosenberg here. Yeah, hi. I got a, I had a huge whoosh in my ears. How are you? All right, welcome to the show, Matt Rosenberg. I'm your hostess, Annie, the Radio Chick, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And you've got a great new book out called What Next, Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. Now, i got to tell you, uh, I don't know if Sutton told you when she booked you with me, but I happen to be a retired NYPD cop. So some of the stuff I was reading had me shaking my head. And, I, I mean, I've been retired for a couple of decades, but I was just shaking my head. Some of it was so reminiscent of the riots we went through in the late 80s, early 90s, but it never got to the boiling point that we have today. And I was reading your book, and I'm saying, how does anyone let a city go into such a cesspool? And when there are good people still living there, my my goodness. And, of course, they've got some of the tightest gun control laws, but yet the only thing you see out there are illegal guns, not not legal guns for defense, but illegal guns to commit all the crimes. That city is out of control. There's a toxic brew in play in Chicago is part of my analysis. You've had this sort of strident, Uh, creeping leftism which denies the agency of self particularly for black individuals they're seen as a permanently disabled class by virtue of uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot's unified theory of systemic racism in addition to the leftism you've got a glaring incompetence in city government so that broken courts broken schools uh finances that are frankly in the crapper none of these things are addressed uh then you've got a political ambition which you know seeks power for its own ends rather than for material uplift and lastly you've got this sort of endemic corruption in chicago all big cities have it but it's been uh, perfected and refined to a high art here and so you've also got rig rules of governance that uh, are meant to uphold the system. So I think that's that's a good part of how you explain what's happened in the city. I've seen incompetence, but never to the extent that I'm seeing it here now. And it's always in the urban areas, New York, Chicago, L.A., places like that, where you have a, a liberal government and lenient policies, revolving door justice. I mean, perfect example is this kid in Arlington that shot up the school, and in less than 24 hours, he's out on a very small, low bail. And none of this ever makes sense. And no one talks about the black-on-black crime, the kids killing kids, innocent kids getting hit in the crossfire. All they're doing is sitting on the stoop playing with their cousin, and the next thing you know, a parent has lost a child. 
and no one is speaking out about it. It's a horrible thing. I can tell you that when I went deep into the south side of Chicago to talk to black people in their homes and in their workplaces, there was a very great awareness of black-on-black violence and a call for parents especially to do better. There is a concern that when a white cop takes a, a young black man's life, which, you know, everyone agrees is an awful thing when it happens and when the policeman is clearly in the wrong, that uh, the concerns about that are one thing, but to turn a blind eye when people are killing each other on a daily basis is a real, real problem. Uh, The good news, if there is any to be had, is that, again, people are aware of this, people in the black community, and there's a growing awareness of a thing that I call Uh, moral authority, which is how do you live your life, right? How do you raise your children? What kind of values do you instill in them? And I think that along with a a sweeping series of policy reforms in uh, my hometown of Chicago, uh, there's some cause for hope because more and more people understand the importance of living with moral authority. Well, that's the whole thing. You also have a pair of households without a father in there. There's no father figure to be guiding, to be the leader, to be the voice of reason and responsibility. So where they do, they reach out to their friends on the street. They get involved in gangs. And then one person disses another. The next thing you know, there's a shootout. There's, there is no... Go ahead. Well, say, no, it's exactly as you say. It's it's a rotten situation and social media and even a, a form of rap music uh, called Chicago drill is at the heart of it. Uh, people record these taunting rap videos and put them up on social media. And the intent is always to, uh, to diss or disrespect some other guy in a rival gang and then to settle the score. Here's the, here's the horrible part. And you've alluded to this earlier they come out, they just spray the block. They're not even targeting the guy that dissed them. They just want to fire bullets up and down the block where that person might live or hang out. And so that's partly how you end up with, you know, somebody's grandma or somebody's little sister being killed for basically no reason at all. Um, the absent fathers are a huge part of this. Uh, I did learn of a number of single mothers who are really heroes, you know, and they're out there. And they're grandmothers who are heroes, too, and who make sure that young men and women are raised right and are all set to lead productive lives. But the odds are uh, against you if you're being raised in a one-parent household. So I think the city, you know, this is a political thing in the end. The uh, political leaders of Chicago, starting with our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, they are scared of their own shadows. It is much easier to kind of finger this amorphous bogeyman of systemic racism than to say, people, we need to step up. We need to stop something I call the tyranny of the minority. You know, there may only be 5% of the city's one million households where things have really gone wrong, but that's enough to make a huge difference on the streets of the city. And that's exactly 
what we're seeing now. Every day seems to bring a fresh hell. You know, you think it can't get much worse. You pick up uh, your your mobile phone to read the news, and it just got much worse overnight. So it's at a very bad state right now in the autumn of 2021. It's it's an emergency state in Chicago. Well, you know, people are afraid to even step out onto the street, much less step into the hallway of their apartment buildings. You don't know what is going to be coming at you. And even if you do stay in your house or your apartment, you're still not safe because bullets go through walls, as we've seen with several children already being killed when they were at home with their family inside the house. They weren't even mm-hmm. outside in the direct line of fire. And instead, they give you a straw man to blame. And they'll say systemic racism. They're victims. You've got to feel sorry for them. They're victims. It's like the way they've taken this shooter down in Arlington. Suddenly, he's a hero. They throw a party for him when he gets home. Oh, how wonderful. He's a hero. No, he's not. He's a criminal that almost took the lives of four people. But instead of looking at it logically, clearly, and seeking justice, they blame everything else except for their lack of liberal policies and their need to cling to power. And that's what it's all about, money and power. And they go hand in hand. And this is how we have a city in complete decay between the corruption, the lack of courage, and the willingness to cling to power at the expense of everyone else. And some governmental reforms would help, as would uh, further education reforms. Uh, the rigged rules of governance are blocking term limits. You talk about politicians clinging to power. You're quite right to identify that as a big issue. There have been attempts to institute term limits, two term limits, for the mayor and the city council members. Those have been beaten back. They could still arise through citizen initiative. It would be an excellent idea. They continue to draw the ward boundaries. We have our local electoral district and the Chicago City Council, 50 of them, that are called wards. Right now they're gerrymandering anew after the uh, decennial census, and we need an independent commission to draw the ward boundaries Uh, You know, the black politicians want black words. The Latino politicians want Latino words. As if the idea of being represented by somebody of your own race has delivered any, uh, you know, material uplift in Chicago. It certainly has not. Um, The elections are held at the most odd time in Chicago in odd-numbered years in February and April. And so we have only 33% voter turnout uh, amongst registered voters when presidential elections draw 70 or 72% turnout across recent years. So that could be changed in the state legislature and ought to be. I think some of these background factors that don't often see the light of day would help create uh, a new level of citizen engagement and maybe correct correct some of the some of the deeply rooted problems that we have in the city of Chicago right now. Well, it's because it, it's also sp- spilling outside of the city. You know, you can only mm-hmm. destroy the city just so much before there's nothing left. There's no longer a miracle mile 
I mean, I visited the Miracle Mile. We went for lunch one time, flew from New York to Chicago, and it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But to know it, it was, it's absolutely destroyed. So all those people, all those jobs, all that tax money that came into city government is now forever gone. And people don't realize you destroy those businesses. It takes generations before they get rebuilt. You tear apart that town. You're not going to see it within the next year popping back. It will take a couple of decades. And people don't understand that. And they're destroying their own properties. And it it breaks my heart. And when I read the book, I haven't completely finished it. I got about halfway through. I'm like, oh, my God. How, How do we all this low and it can only be through corruption greed and stupidity I think Chicago has about you know maybe till 2030 uh, to really pull it together Uh, and something something big has to start soon the city needs to move fast and break things Uh, you could extend the analysis to K through 12 public education they've started to uh allow in charter schools but the teachers union insisted on capping the growth of charter schools and two mayors in a row now including our current mayor Lori lightfoot have agreed to basically put a ceiling on charter school growth um the results are much better performance wise for charter school students according to analyses done by the University of Chicago's Educational Research Consortium. There are also uh, increasing opportunities for private school tuition aid to come from private donors because of a state program that gives people a 75% state income tax credit for donations they make for minority children to attend private schools. You know, during COVID, we saw the emergence of something called micro schools, uh, which was, you know, five or six kids with an adult in a room somewhere uh, being hooked up to their public charter school teachers. Parents can't always be home to oversee that stuff during the current pandemic or the next pandemic. So, you know, there's a whole range of innovations that are needed, and I think that's where the real game is here. It's competition amongst urban regions. We see that the Southwest and the South are winning out and the Northeast and the North are losing out. It's because of this stasis in governance, this being wedded to urban progressive misrule and all of the old policy formulations that gird it, Um, you know, the North is, is behind the eight ball here. The Chicago's, the Detroit's, the Cleveland's, New York City, Philadelphia. They've really got to get in the game because I'll tell you who's eating their lunch right now. It's Jacksonville, Florida. It's uh, greater Dallas and greater Phoenix. You know, the business environment is friendly. The tax climate is better. The streets are safer. The public schools actually work. People aren't stupid, and, you know, they'll get up and go. Well, that's the whole thing. The, the feet are doing the voting. 
because you're seeing mm-hmm. people fleeing California, New York, New Jersey by the droves. And we have a saying down here in the South, we don't give a damn how you did it up north. So it's like, keep that stuff away from us. But that's, that's a whole thing. That's a whole other story. But also, they have to have someone that backs the, the police. And because if the police are out there and they start to do the community policing like we did in the 80s, they can clean right. the city up very easily because it becomes a partnership between the people and the officers. It's not us versus them. And these are other things that we done to help bring Chicago back. We were able to do it with New York in the short time I was there. And now de Blasio sent it right back down to the hellhole again. And, oh, did you hear he's looking to run for governor? My goodness. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. Um, I think it's, it's important you mentioned community policing. You know, the term and the practice have fallen in and out of favor, but at root it involves something very important, which is simply foot patrols on a regular basis, particularly targeted toward high-crime districts in a given city. It has worked before in Chicago. It was briefly instituted under our mayor, Rahm Emanuel, by a police chief who had worked in New York at one time named Jerry McCarthy. Um, There's a whole body of literature showing that nationally foot patrols have reduced violent crime in a number of cities and that it helps to build trust between the community and the police. And we know, and certainly you know as a former cop, that that, those bonds of trust then can help you solve crimes and and even deter crime in the end. So there's literally no end to the the constructive uh, policy reforms that could be instituted by a city government that cared and that could harness its collective intelligence. And that's the thing. The people on the city council in Chicago are not stupid. Most of them know better, but their priorities are completely skewed. And as you mentioned, and and as I've alluded to, the the prerogative really becomes to, to accrete power, build it ever bigger and ever bigger, and it becomes its own end. And, you know, what use is political power if you don't use it uh, to lift up the governed. Uh, sadly, you know, that's not a belief that many in office now subscribe to. It's, and it's a tragedy of its own kind. Yeah, well, Chicago needs a Curtis Sliwa. That's what you need, too. You need right. someone from right. the community that's got the courage to turn around, someone like you, to ring the alarm and say, this is what's going on. Let's get some bodies together. Let's help protect our own streets. And if we see something going down, let's help the cops. And that's what he did. He gave us a hand, believe it or not. At first, it was like, well, this guy's a nut. But in the end, he was able to clean up whole neighborhoods. But the people have to want to rise up and give you guys a hand. You're pointing out the problem. Now the people have to do something about that problem. Absolutely right. And this has to start, you know, uh, in church parishes. It has to start in uh, neighborhood clubs, uh, at PTAs. There needs to be kind of a bottom-up uprising 
the challenging part here is that urban progressive misrule uh, creates a great apathy because people start to see or think at least that nothing will ever get better. And so they figure, well, why should I get involved? You know, I'll maybe I'll get a gun to use just for self-defense. And in the meantime, I'll mind my own business, do my job, try and raise my kids right. But I'm going to check out from civic life. And so the problems that we have with our corruption, our rigged rules of governance, our revolving door courts, our uh, skyrocketing public employee pension debt, that's a whole other thing. Uh, All of that stuff just falls to the wayside and the people who created the problems think that they've got carte blanche to to go on just as they have been doing. Um, So it's really, really tough. Well, you, you said something important, saying not wanting to get involved. I call it the Kitty Genovese factor. I don't know if you remember that story yeah. of the late 70s. And she was brutally murdered while an entire apartment building listened and watched. And no one lifted a finger because they did not want to get involved. They were afraid if they were identified, the killer's going to come back after them. Well, you have this now with the street gangs. You're afraid to get involved because you know they're going to come back and spray the street back up again to go after you. So they're afraid. So this is where we need the community policing to step in and say, all right, fine. You want us to come in? We'll come in. We'll set up foot posts, and let's start working together. And that way we can protect you and you can help us. But it has to start somewhere. Someone has to make that first step forward. And I think political leadership has to serve as, you know, stimulation for that to occur. New York, I don't know what you think of Eric Adams, but I'd say he's a darn sight better than Bill de Blasio. And Chicago could use its own Eric Adams in 2023 when we have our next mayoral election. Um, we need uh, a strong political leader, uh, probably someone of color someone black or Latino uh, who stands behind police and giving them the right to do their jobs effectively while still holding them accountable for important improvements. Uh, We need a mayor who will also support the growth rather than the restriction of school choice. Uh, You know, we need somebody who sets the right tone and who can go that extra mile and call upon parents and families and communities to step up and live live and act with moral authority and raise their children with moral authority because everything else, even community policing, which I strongly support, is a reaction to a problem that has already been unleashed. So it's, it's, it's the unleashing of the problem that we've got to stop, you know, and... Again and again, one is forced to come back to public schools. You know, if teachers can capture the imagination of students and incite them to learn and achieve and dream and aspire, I, be, I believe a lot of this comes down to what it is that we dream about for our own lives. And if you can't dream of a positive, exciting future, and if your father is long gone, you know, you're practically at the mercy of the street gangs. So we need to be working 
ever harder at creating, uh, let's call them alternative realities, you know, for the young men and women who are at risk. Yeah, bring it back to the moral authority. And this, again, is where the churches, the synagogues, the temples can also step in and say, oh, our doors are open, you know, Hmm? let's help you. And that that Hmm? has to be awesome. But they're afraid. They're afraid if they do open the doors, they're going to have, like they did before, those flash mobs that showed up and interrupted the, uh, the services. So someone is going to have to have the courage to make that first step. And I, my prayers are with you guys. I mean, you're, it's amazing that you go in there in the condition it's in at your own risk. But you care about the city so much that you wrote this wonderful book, What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. Uh, Matt, so when people listen to the show later on, because I get a lot of hits in the archives, they can just click on the name of the book. It'll take them directly to your site where they can purchase the book. Fantastic. I really appreciate that. And if anyone does end up going directly to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, the book is available at both places. All you have to do is enter What Next Chicago, and it'll pop up. It's not in stores, online only. And also available in Kindle, right? Yes, indeed. And same at Barnes & Noble. I think they call it Nook, their ebook version. But that's right, paperback or electronic. And I hope before too terribly long to have an audio version uh, of the book available. But that's, that's some time out. Well, good luck. Good luck. And uh, like I said, our prayers are going out for the people that are there because they're suffering hard. And something has to go. Something has to go soon. There's a boiling point to which it's going to erupt. And, oh, Lord, my prayers are with you guys. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you today. All right. Have a blessed day. Matt Rosenberg, check out his book. Check out the link on the show page. Uh, It's called What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. All right. And Curtis is bringing in, and I'm waiting for Curtis to come back on, and if he unmutes himself, and hopefully we'll have our next guest in on the studio. So I'm looking and watching, and I'm waiting. So, Curtis, let me know. Is is our guest with us? Yes, he is. Okay. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the show, Dean Ruder. Uh, he is the author of The Hidden Nazi, Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. He's also the general counsel for the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy at the Fellow at the National Security Institute at the George Mason University, Anton Scalia Law School. I said it all at once. Can you imagine? I got through it, Dean. That's impressive. It is a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> it is a mouthful. It is a mouthful. Oh, my God. The, the, the political climate that we are in and around today is absolutely unbelievable. We have a president that is turning around saying, if you're not vaccinated, you can't work. Have you ever heard a president pull a stunt like that before? that he can turn around to an entire nation and said, we're going to segregate the people, those that are vaccinated and obey me, the tyrant, or those who are unvaccinated and are part of the domestic terrorism system. I have never seen. 
I, I no, I have not. I mean, there is there are lines drawn by government officials all the time on the federal, state, and local level. Um, but I'm not aware, and I don't want to get it too much into to current events um, uh, because of my positions. I, I, I can't really speak uh, to the press too much, but uh, in, in regard to current events. But no, I haven't seen anything like this. Uh, before, I mean, the closest thing to a government mandate, um, this specific that I'm aware of in terms of the federal government, is the Affordable Care Act, where you're you're required to go out and get health care whether you want it or not. That was implemented, of course, by an act of Congress, both houses of Congress, and then signed by the president. And there was some controversy over the way it was enacted, but it was two branches of government, at least, coming together and saying, we're going to do this. And then the third branch, the court, put its imprimatur on it when the law was challenged. So um, that's, that's different than having just one, uh, one branch of government or one person implement uh, such, a, uh, such a mandate. Well, it's, it's going to be heating up. It's going to be exciting. And uh, I don't know where to go with that at this point. Anyway, because uh, Sutton told me to talk to you about certain subjects, and I said, oh, my goodness, okay, because we interviewed you for the book the last time you were on, and it's a fascinating book. And to realize that uh, all these things were going on behind the scenes and you were able to uncover all this stuff, all these um, – I'm trying to remember how long ago. Uh, we're, we're talking about 1945. You're talking – doing a quick math? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's over and, 75 years ago now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to be able to dig all this up all these years later, it, it is fascinating. How did you go about doing it? How got, how, what got you onto this one person, this guy, uh, Kamler? That's a great question. I, uh, there's a, there's a, a friend of mine who I've known since college. I'm 60 years old, so I've known this friend for uh, over 40 years. Um, he was at the same college I was at, and um, he was involved in researching World War II, aspects of World War II, and came across the name Hans Kambler. Um, now we're fast-forwarding to the early 2000s, um, and by 2010, he reached out to me to, as a lawyer, I'm a lawyer by training, to uh, write an agreement between him and another researcher, our other co-author, Colin Lowry, Dr. Colin Lowry, who was researching the same general. And these two researchers, Keith and Colin, uh, came across one another online in a chat room and realized they were researching the same general and wanted to share their research um, under certain terms and conditions. You know, they didn't know each other at the time. Um, so that was what uh, my involvement was, drafting an agreement so they could share the details of their research. And I have to say that they made some extraordinary claims about this Nazi general that I, I just thought were too spectacular to be true. But as a, as a lawyer writing an agreement between the two of them, I didn't have any skin in the game. It didn't, didn't matter to me whether this was a true story or not. But by, 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 you know, over time, uh, I started looking at this Nazi general myself, started doing some research. Uh, Keith and Colm started sharing bits and pieces of their research with me. And, um, you know, looking back on it, I don't know if they intentionally did this to try and recruit me as a fellow researcher and the primary author of the book or if it's just my natural curiosity and inclination. But, you know, I, I went from being a, a real skeptic that something this extraordinary could remain hidden for this long uh, to becoming the principal author. 
Well, now what made him stand out? What what was it that they were saying that was just so fantastic that you said no, it can't be, can't possibly be true? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, uh, th- this guy Hans Kammler, a Nazi general, an Obergruppenführer, and Obergruppenführer is a German word for uh, overgeneral, really, and it is. Uh, the highest rank you can have in the SS, in the dreaded Schutzstaffel. That's the inner circle of the Nazi ideologues, the worst of the worst, really. And Kamler, the only guy to be elevated to that level in the entire final year of the war. So he was, he was a bit of a one-off. He was a super, super powerful guy. Um, that's not extraordinary. I mean, somebody had to be operating at that level. But the fact that he was the only guy elevated to that level in the final year of the war makes him special. And then uh, I went on to learn through Keith and Colm and my own research that he was the guy who identified the Auschwitz camp as the site for the biggest killing camp and slave labor camp of the Nazi regime. He, Kamler, the hidden Nazi, was the guy who laid out the boundaries of the camp and decided that, no, we're not going to have the slave labor camp over here. That's going to be the killing camp because it's close to the railroad tracks. We're going to put the slave labor camp a little further away because those people can uh, can get to it more easily. The, the people we're going to kill right away, the women, the children, the elderly, those are the people that can't walk so far. So we're going to put their camp right at the end of the railroad tracks. Um, Kamler's the guy that designed not only the camp, the barracks, the roads, the, the infrastructure, also the gas chambers and the ovens. And that in and of itself is a spectacular story. The fact that one of the key engineers of the Holocaust had never been researched, had never been written about in any language. There, and there, not, not only was there no English language book, there was no German language book or any other researcher that had um, started to dig into Kamler's life. Um, for reasons we can get into. But, and as I was you know, wading my way into this project, I talked with dozens of people, some of them uh, you know, just ordinary lawyers, some friends and colleagues, um, some actual uh, World War II buffs, some chaired historians, you know, chaired Harvard uh, historians, and none of them had ever heard of Hans Kammler. So th- that fact makes him extraordinary, but there's much, much more than that that we reveal in The Hidden Nazi that makes the thing almost unbelievable. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of this from memory because it was a while ago that we, we spoke last time and we did the interview, so I'm doing a lot of this off the top of my head. But he, not only did he design the camps, but he oversaw the running of them too. And if, if it, anyone is familiar with you know how the ovens worked, or the gas chambers, they would be told they'd be going for a shower, and they're all undressed inside this one room, and a cyanide pellet gets dropped in. To come up with such a sadistic manner in which to kill people. And then in the ovens, they were just, no, no, don't worry, you're going in for a shower. No, you're being shoved into an oven, you're being baked alive. And right. He came up with some of the, the most horrific things in which to slaughter people. 
Yeah, the gas chambers were, as you suggest, they were designed to trick people. They were designed to look like showers, like a gang shower, like you'd have in your old uh, gym school ages ago in high school uh, in your gym. Um, and people were made to disrobe. They were told, fold your clothes nicely, put them in this special numbered bin, because after you come out, you're going to be able to find your clothes uh, and your personal belongings. And um, then they were marched in. And as you said, the Zyklon B, uh, prussic acid gas, was dropped in, and they were killed. And the testimony of Auschwitz uh, commandant says that you know that process took three to fifteen minutes, and of course it was excruciating and just a horrid way to die. And um, you're right that Kamler not only designed this, um, he helped maintain it. I mean, we have the documents that show he designed the gas chambers, the ovens, and when there were modifications necessary or problems with them, he was on site daily or weekly managing this, and not just at Auschwitz. He did this, he duplicated this work at uh, almost a 1,000 camps throughout the Third Reich. Now, they didn't have a 1,000 um, killing camps. There, there weren't a 1,000 uh, installations with gas chambers and ovens, but um, there were plenty of those, and the rest were slave labor camps. So after he you know, perfected the methods of killing, he went on to rule Germany's slave labor trade, and this was the the use of prisoners of war or Jews that had been uh, imported from other countries, forcibly, of course, uh, using them as slaves in support of the Nazi war effort. And they were ground to dust. I mean, they weren't using these slaves in a way that um, uh, was designed to, uh, you know, feed them well, give them good health care, and keep them as vibrant workers. Part of the design of the slave labor system that, that Kamler came up with was literally to work them to death, and that's what he did. And that's that's how you get to some some you know spectacularly horrible death totals of, of millions of people. Yes, absolutely. But he was also involved in the development of the the rockets, the the aviation yeah. technologies. Yeah, and that's where that's where I think the the story goes from really horrid and, and some, in some ways difficult to read um, to really fascinating. I mean, there's some technology that was being developed by the Germans, the Nazis, and it was far, far more advanced than anything the Allies had. Uh, and these were the V-2 rockets, the liquid-fueled um, supersonic rockets that Germany had been working on since the 1930s. They were, it took them 12 years to get from uh, you know, the drawing board to a point where they could launch one of these rockets uh, onto Paris and then London and Southampton. But these were 46-foot rockets. When I started doing the research, I thought, oh, maybe these rockets are 8 feet tall or tall as a man, 8 feet, 10 feet tall. They were 46 feet tall, um, flew at 3,600 miles an hour at a height of 55 miles. And just to give you some context... Uh, you know, a, a, a major aircraft nowadays will fly at maybe five or six miles altitude and about five or six hundred miles an hour. These were going 3,600 miles an hour, and they were supersonic, which means they would land before their auditory signature showed up. So you could be walking down the street in London, and a city block would just uh, evaporate. Um, they, they hit with such force and had such high explosives on them that they discharged uh, – 
the equivalent in terms of shrapnel and dirt and just debris flying around of 2,000 automobiles. Uh, that's the weight of the, of the mass that they displaced when they exploded. Um, so these were extraordinary weapons. And um, if we fast forward a little bit towards the end of the year, um, the Hidden Nazi, the book, reveals that that's what we were after, the Americans. As the war was ending, we knew that we wanted that technology, all the secret weapon technology. Hamler ruled that. He ruled their nuclear weapons program. He ruled their Messerschmitt jet program, everything much more advanced than the U.S. had. We wanted it, and Kamler was the only guy that could deliver it to us. And he did. But wait a minute. Oh, wait. No, didn't he commit suicide? Didn't his aide turn around and report him as having committed suicide? Hmm. Something's not right here, is there? <laughs> You're right. It doesn't quite add up. And your memory's really quite good on, the, on these points. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, our, our working thesis was that um, Kamler took this rocket team, we could notice, and we were able to document, the rocket team is, was about 4,500 people. You know, you can think of a rocket team as three or four guys in a garage building a rocket, but uh, the German uh, rocket team is 4,500 people working for years on the north coast of Germany. And that's where they were working until late in the war, um, they started launching these rockets at London. Uh, everybody became aware of the rockets as soon as they were deployed in battle. And there's this tightly sequenced series of events that we call the Kamler deal. Um, the first rocket started to land in October of 1994. Just a single month later, the United States enters into a contract with Jet. No, you said 1994. 1944. I'm sorry, 1944. <laughs> I'm not sure what I said. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the correction. So October 1944, the first V-2 rockets land um, and explode. By November 1944, just one month later, the U.S. signs a contract with General Electric to determine what these are and to build us, build the United States, uh, some version of the rockets. So we have a, uh, we have a contractor. In December of 1944, just a month later, Kamler's emissaries are meeting with Americans and with General Electric in Portugal on neutral territory. There's this highly secret meeting that nobody knows about. Uh, and w that's where we think Kamler cemented a deal. If you can erase my Holocaust past, if you can rehabilitate me um, in the eyes of the world, basically, or save my life, I will deliver the rocket team and other goodies to you. And as proof of that, you know, just one month after that, in January, um, Kamler moves the rocket team from that installation in northern Germany, uh, 4,500 people, into central Germany. And he thinks he's won the day. He's kept them out of reach of the Russians, and he thinks he's preserved them for the United States. But what happens then is in, January, in February, there's something called the Yalta Conference. That's when the Allies got together, and they divided up. They, they set the dividing lines for the different territories, the different zones of occupation. And the place that Kamler just moved the rocket team was going to be in the Russian zone. So he had to move them again one month after that. And he moves them down to southern Germany in Bavaria, uh, about a week's march from the advancing U.S. Army. And that's how he delivered the rocket team. And that's how 
you know, we theorize he saved his own life. But as you've already pointed out, that logic chain sort of falls apart when you look and think he, he committed suicide. His wife actually had him declared dead, a German court declared him dead after the war in May of 1945. He was, uh, it was reported, he was trapped in Prague, drove a short way outside the city with his driver, walked off into the woods and killed himself. But um, this is another thing that caught our attention, that, that nobody ever produced a body his dog tags, his sidearm, his papers, the things that everyone was required to take to a, a, um, a, a station, a, a military installation as proof of death, none of that was ever produced. There was even a post-war search of his grave, uh, grave site, I should say, not of his grave, but his alleged grave site. Nobody could find a body. And Kamler was the equivalent in rank of George Patton. So this is like literally like losing the body of George Patton and even in the chaos of the final days of a war, that's just unthinkable. And th that made us wonder, did he really commit suicide? Because um, it, it felt to us like he wasn't the kind of guy who committed suicide and there were all these suspicious circumstances and then actually a couple different versions of his death. And, you know, when you get different versions of events that are incompatible with one another, you begin to suspect whether or not it's true at all. And, and in the end, we were able to find U.S. Army documents that proved Kamler didn't, he didn't commit suicide at the end of the war. He actually surrendered to the U.S. Army in what I think is just an extraordinary turn of events. And that's, uh, that's really the story we lay out in, in the book, The Hidden Nazi. Well, were you able to actually trace him here into the United States itself? Yeah, that's another good question. I mean, what we were able to show is that Kamler supposedly committed suicide in May of 1945, but he surrendered. Instead, he surrendered to the U.S. Army. We had him in custody. The U.S. Army had him in custody. Uh, we interrogated him in central Austria about millions of marks of missing money. We interrogated him in central Germany, that second rocket site, about some scientists who might have been lingering behind and maybe some buried documents on, on the rocket technology. And we can show that he was in Nuremberg on the eve of the Nuremberg trials in November of 1945. And then last things we have in, in the files that we were able to, to, um, to get from the federal government, he was, there's a, an extradition request. We had him in custody, the Americans had him in custody in February and March of 1946. Great Britain asks for Kamler, saying we want to bring him to London. And there's a note in the file saying we don't have any objection to the extradition of Kamler. And then he just evaporates. The paper trail ends, and it's like Kamler never existed. And there are no other records to be found. So, in other words, we covered up the fact he ever existed because he had so much intimate knowledge into these rockets and everything else that we wanted that information. So it was worth the price of letting him walk away, never be tried for the crimes he committed, and never be held accountable. That's exactly right. That's, that's the other side. That's our side, the American side of the deal that we took the rocket team from him, he delivered them to us, and instead of trying him, we let him walk free. And we, uh, you know, we don't, 
we can't say for certain at the end of the war whether he stayed in, in, in Germany or on the continent or whether he came to the United States or whether he went to South America. But we provide a lot of details and documentation on other um, matters that really suggest that he went to uh, South America with the help of the Americans in something called the Rat Line, which was a, uh, a, a, an escape line really set up um, through Central and Southern Europe in the end of, at the end of the war, years after the war, and operated for five or six years after the war to help get Nazis out, off the continent. They'd end up in Italy and then take a steamer down to South America with new papers provided by the Red Cross um, and sometimes by other elements of government. And um, their records were scrubbed clean. They were given new identities, and they were sent down to South America to start a new life. And um, that's the way we think Kamler went. And, and we found a 1953 report. The war ends in 1945. There's a 1953 CIA report that, that just reads like an alarm bell there. The CIA is dreadfully fright, afraid that there's going to be a Fourth Reich because they're in South America checking things out. They find German enclaves and, and not just, you know, a handful of Germans here and there, but entire villages and townships that had been created and populated by Germans, run by Germans, German chambers of commerce, everybody's speaking Germans. Um, and on top of that, you have a whole bunch of missing scientists that have, you know, nuclear capabilities, jet capabilities, rocket capabilities, explosive capabilities, and missing gold and missing funds. Um, the, the CIA report documents all of this, and they were just um, scared to death that there was going to be a fourth right, that the, that the Nazis were reorganizing and would launch some sort of uh, new effort from a government in exile in South America. Well, you know, you see how good my memory is because I know we had this conversation before because I've traveled to South America. I've seen those villages in South America, and they're very much still in existence. And if I also remember correctly, at one point there was a movie along that lines where they were grooming the new Fourth Reich to start. Uh, I think it was two different movies along that line where they were saying there might be another Fourth Reich and coming out of South America. Um, it, that's right. And to everybody that feels like wild speculation or like fiction. And, of course, it never really came to pass. But it, it, was, um, it was a real possibility, and it's, it's perfectly true that the CIA, our, our you know, central intelligence uh, agency, was, was afraid that it would happen. So there was real concern by government leaders and, and intelligence assets that the Nazis were reorganizing. Now, why it never came to happen uh, is anybody's guess. Um, Did we lose, we lose Dean? No, I'm still here. I was saying why it oh, came okay. to I don't know if I broke up there or not, but why it came to happen, uh, never came to happen, rather, is anybody's guess. Uh, but th those are just some of the other threads of stories we lay out in, in the hidden Nazi. And the main story is about Kamler. But we talk, for example, about Werner von Braun. He is the lead rocket scientist of the Nazis. He came to the United States. Um, his record was scrubbed. Um, he came here, became an American hero. He helped get us on the moon. He helped uh, 
create our ICBM and helped us win the Cold War. Uh, and you know, there are photographs of him with Walt Disney touring the country promoting rocket research and adventures in space, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's very clear. I mean, we got re- records on him uh, from after the war years. And two or three, four years after the war, he's still hiding information from the U.S. government. Uh, his employer, he still, um, they were exploring, you know, the extent of his n- Nazi war crimes. Uh, he became, as I said, an American hero. But it, we were we were able to prove, uh, nobody else has proved this, that that he not only used slave laborers in creating rockets, but he did things like recruit slaves. He was personally responsible for going out and getting particular people as slaves that he needed to help with his rocket research. Um, it's also clear that as the war ended, everybody knows Germany has lost the war. Um, there's no reason to go on producing these rockets, but uh, Verna von Braun, our American hero, threw a whole bunch of slaves out of their barracks and out of some tunnels they were living in so he could make more facilities not to do scientific research, but to actually assemble more rockets and to, to be launched at, at the enemy. So he's not the innocent um, Nazi that, that, that he's portrayed to be in, in American history. No, it's a very, very fascinating book. Now, one thing I do seem to remember also is that you had a hard time getting some of these government documents. But you were eventually able to get get what you needed. We 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 I think we got almost everything we needed. The problem is with the, with a research like this, um, a lot of times you'll get documents. You know, you can request them from archives or under Freedom of Information Act. We got documents from archives, meaning official federal records, not just from the United States, but from governments all over Europe. Uh, but there are other documents that we got from small libraries, um, uh, from military bases around the world. Uh, these documents are everywhere. And uh, sometimes you would get documents that are heavily redacted, meaning uh, you know, you'd have 10 pages of documents, but um, words here and there or complete sentences, sometimes complete uh, paragraphs or even pages were taken out. Um, and there were two documents in particular that I'm troubled uh, about. Um, they're both, one is 35 pages long, one was 70 pages long. So together they're over 100 pages. And this is based on a Freedom of Information Act we, re- we made of the Department of Justice for documents relevant to Hans Kemmler. And they wrote back to us and said, we have two documents. We can't even give you redacted versions. We can't give you anything. Um, and they de- but they described them, 30, 35 pages and 70 pages. One was created in 1969. The other was created in 1987. And I, I just scratched my head. It's like, what do they have that's so lengthy, created you know, 20 or even 40 years after the end of the war uh, on Hans Kammler that they can't reveal to us? To me, that's pretty striking. So we Which got a lot of he was around, but we, I, I think there's more out there. Oh, so there's going to be a sequel. Yes, we we are working on a sequel. Uh, I'm still trying to get people to to buy the first book. And by the way, I, I would love for people to buy this book and share it with their um, older children. And by old, I think you know if you're in ninth grade, high school age, this is a good book for 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 
kids that age to be reading. I, I am shocked uh, with some of the data that comes out um, that describes the, I have to say ignorance, or just lack of familiarity with the younger generation about what happened in World War II. 66% of them don't know what the Holocaust is or don't know what Auschwitz is, and 20% of them don't know what the Holocaust is. Um, and those are some pretty disturbing numbers. Uh, and, you know, there is a sort of axiom, I suppose, that those who, who don't study history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. I do believe there's a lot of truth in that. And, you know, I don't see, I don't see a, a Nazi regime on the horizon, but I do think it's important for people of my generation, 60 years old, to know about this and people of younger generations who are losing this history to know about this. And, and the book, uh, The Hidden Nazi, it provides a good introduction not just to World War II and to the Holocaust, um, but to this, I think, fabulous uh, story of uh, uncovering the real truth about Hans Kammler. Well, Dean, there's a link on the show page, like we did last time. People can go straight to the link as they listen to the podcast, click on it, and it'll go directly to your book so they can get a Christmas gift for the child of their choice. How's that? There you go. There you go. And I will, my last plug for the book is that it's just come out in paperback. It's available in hardback, too, but also Audible and Kindle. So you can read it any way you want. Well, thank you, Dean. God bless you. God bless you, and thanks so much for having me on again. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. The book is The Hidden Nazi. Click on the link and download it or buy it. But it's it's an excellent read. But we also want to welcome back to the show Larry Clayman. His book that we had talked to him about last time was It Takes a Revolution to Get the Scandal Industry. He is the former chair and founder of Judicial Watch and current chairman of Freedom Watch. Larry Clayman, how are you today? Oh, I'm hanging in there. I mean, it's a difficult period of time for the country and for people that live in it. Uh, But we're soldiering on, and we've got a plan on how we can create a new government and move on from the dictatorship that we're currently living under. Ah, you're the man with the plan. I don't. I have a plan. <laughs> and uh, right now, we basically are like under a dictatorship. We have a president in the Oval Office. Uh, well, I'm not sure he could be on the st- on that stage set. Maybe he's not at the White House. They're, they're probably filming him at the stage set again. And but you, things are coming out of that White House that is like you shake your head every day. Can I get any crazier? Do they even know what they're doing, or are they just doing this deliberately to destroy our nation? No, it's deliberate. And let me give you their six- or seven-part plan, because it keeps growing. Number one, they're using COVID-19 or whatever it is that's out there. This Delta variant may not be COVID-19. It may be the Spanish flu revisited, because Fauci was doing gain-of-function research on that, which is far more deadly. They use that to take total control of the American people. We've, in effect, become like the Jews of Nazi Germany. If you don't want to take this vaccine, which I believe is dangerous, then you're going to wear the Star of David so they can tell who you are. And they're going to put you, figuratively speaking, on boxcars and send you to concentration camps. I'm being metaphoric. Secondly, they'll use the FBI as a Gestapo, and it fits the first analogy, to terrorize anyone who rises up 
and dissent, like they're doing with the people who were in Washington, D.C., peacefully on January 6th. Not, you know, the few criminals on both sides, but overwhelming majority. Then they'll use the federal judges, who Jefferson predicted because unelected uh, and life-tenured would become despots and tyrants, to rubber stamp what the establishment wants. And, of course, these judges became federal judges through forms of legalized bribery, just like bribery, Campaign contributions and other political grease got them on the bench. They're no different than the judges of King George III who rubber-stamped his edicts. Then you destroy police departments by defunding them or getting rid of them, and you let crime run rampant through the streets. You destroy Judeo-Christian ethics. You start a race war. You propagate the notion that there's no difference between a man and a woman and that if your kid comes home from school and says, gee, I think it's neat, I want to be a transsexual, then you take him off to, to a place, and then Obamacare will pay for his transsexual operation. You know, I, I, I'm, not be, I'm not even joking here. This is what the left is maintaining. And then, you, of course, you destroy any sense of, of life. You kill hundreds of millions of babies and without any kind of remorse. And in addition to that, you destroy the military, uh, which is necessary for our natural, national defense. We saw what's been going on in Afghanistan. So, yeah, it's a full-court press. Oh, I forgot, the southern border. You let drug traffickers, sex traffickers, terrorists and others run across the border, many infected with disease, and then you spread them out throughout the country. So we are in a far worse situation today than we were in 1776 under King George III. He was not a socialist. He was not a communist. He was not an atheist. He was not a radical of these other groups. He simply wanted to tax us, overtax us, to pay for the rest of his empire. These people want to do that. They want to destroy capitalism. Oh, yeah, again, I forgot the, the other prong. Pump money into the economy so nobody wants to work, so you destroy capitalism, free enterprise. This is their plan. It's by design, and they have succeeded in only nine months. So we don't have a Republican Party that will stand up for them. How many emails do you get every day asking for money, even from people in and around Trump? I get five to seven of them every day. I send, President Trump doesn't need money. He's worth $8 billion. The American people need money. This goes to the consultants. This is a scam. This is a racketeering enterprise. The Republican Party does not exist as our protector, so we simply need to form a new government as our founding fathers did in 1776. We need to nominate honest people, people that represent us to run that government, and we need to leave this government to its own devices in Washington, D.C. They can commit crimes against each other. It's not far-fetched. It's what we did in the days, months, and years leading up to 1776. We have a nation, but we don't have a government. And the Declaration of Independence says, when in the course of human events, the sovereign, the rulers, no longer represent the people under the laws of nature and nature's God, not the laws of the king, not the laws of the state, the laws of nature and nature's God, that they have a right to alter or abolish that government and to form a new government by and for the people with equal rights for everyone in pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. That's paraphrasing Jefferson and the Founding Fathers. This is what we must do. We will not be violent. We will not declare war against this other government, this corrupt government. They can collapse under their own weight. We will form our own government with our own leaders, people like Alan Keyes as president or others, or Sarah Palin or Michelle Bachman or 
Chelsea Gabbard, people who have been destroyed by the, Repu by the Republican and Democratic establishments who know that we need a new government, uh, much like what occurred when George Washington was nominated to be our first president. We will find the leaders to lead us to the promised land. And you have this all laid out where people can go it, look at it. Is it under Freedom Watch? Yeah, at freedomwatchusa.org. You know, we um, had a Third Continental Congress on July 5th and 6th of this year. We're continuing to deliberate. We will soon be declaring independence, and we'll be putting up nominate people uh, to fill the posts of, of our government. And we will have new political parties. I'm forming one myself in a separate organization called the New American Independence Party. We hope to have more. But the current system is beyond repair. It's in, it's in stage four cancerous state. It is dying of its own weight. And I'm tired of watching these people go on TV, particularly Fox News, raise money for themselves, tell people things are going to happen, they're not going to happen, and then rolling over. Just yesterday, Mitch McConnell caved in. He's the minority leader in the Senate to the majority leader, Schumer, increasing the debt to the United States. This is temporary for a few months, but it will be increased. The Republicans don't represent us. They simply don't. And uh, when they ask you for money, throw it in the trash because they're just going to, to fill their own coffers and, and their own uh, lifestyles, questionable lifestyles, I might add. And when, when are you supposed to be planning on initiating all of this? Oh, very, very shortly. Stay tuned at freedomwatchusa.org. We have speeches that were given at the Third Continental Congress up there right now. I wrote a book. This is all peaceful and legal. We're not advocating a coup d'etat. We're not advocating uh, violence against this current corrupt government. We're just simply saying we're going to form our own. And, of course, if that government wishes to move against us, we have Second Amendment rights, and we will defend ourselves. But we're not looking for a fight. Our founding fathers didn't look for a fight. They simply declared independence, and then the king declared war on them, on us. So, but if you care about your kids and grandkids, and you don't want them to live in a socialist, communist, atheist hell, which is we're very close to that right now, then you're going to have to take risks. You're going to have to get out of retirement, put the scotch and soda down, take your feet up off the coffee table, and turn Sean Hannity off. Stop being entertained with scandal. You have to rise up. And that's what I wrote about in my book, It Takes a Revolution. Forget the scandal industry, which you can get at all major booksellers. And for a contribution of $50 or more at freedomwatchusa.org, which pays for these things because they are expensive. We also have citizens grand juries where we're holding uh, corrupt politicians and judges accountable to the rule of law. That is our right, just as our founding fathers did when they took the legal system back. And... Um, you know, to the extent we can make any headway in the courts, because the federal courts are corrupt, we're bringing cases and hoping that we find one honest judge that will do his job. Frankly, I haven't found one yet, but uh, we hold out hope. Well, you have a couple of the uh, citizen grand jury information up there already, and you've initiated a lawsuit against the FBI director and agents and bureaus over the January 6th incident. Where does that stand? Well, a very uh, corrupt 
magistrate who worked for the Justice Department before the case was even filed, excuse me, before it was even served on the government, dismissed the case with all kinds of BS, and we're refiling it again in a different setting. But this is what I'm talking about, is that Jefferson said, and I write this in my book, and this is why we need a new government, we need to make a few changes to our Constitution so we have elected judges, not judges that are bought and paid for by special interest in the establishment. But Jefferson said, unelected, unaccountable to the people, federal judges would become despots and tyrants, causing us to shed the blood of patriots and tyrants again every 20 years or so, adding what's a few thousand dead to refresh the tree of liberty. He didn't want to see anybody dead or hurt, neither do I, neither do you. But he predicted what would happen if we don't change course, ultimately. And that's why, you know, when we form our new government, we will make some additions to our Constitution. Judges will no longer be appointed based on political campaign contributions and other grease. They'll be elected. We'll have a way to remove a president short of a violent revolution, whether it's a recall provision or whether we go to a modification of the parliamentary system where votes of no confidence could remove somebody like Biden before he destroys the country in the next three and a half years with his worthless cackling witch, Kamala Harris, who does nothing, who just sits there and carries on and has a good time, or Nancy Pelosi, who spends time getting one, more facelifts one after another. I, I think of Joan Rivers, who said she had so many facelifts, her face would crack if she smiled. I mean, what does this woman do, you know, other than create difficulty? you know, in terms of carrying out the vision of our founding fathers. So we need a new government. We need to make some changes to our Constitution. We need to take immunity away from federal government officials and judges who gave it to themselves. There's no immunity in the Constitution when they do things that are illegally, do things illegal. Look at what Biden did just uh, a week and a half ago or two weeks ago when he ordered a drone strike and killed seven kids in Afghanistan. I filed a complaint against him at the International Criminal Court in Holland. That's a crime against humanity. He needs to be held accountable. So these are the things that we need to do. He has no immunity. He cannot hide behind immunity when you kill seven children because you want to look like the tough guy when you just allowed 13 American brave hero servicemen to die because of your criminal negligence in Afghanistan. This is what we're dealing with today. It could not get more serious than it is. Uh, are you part of the Convention of States at all? No, yeah. I don't recognize it. I don't, I don't want a convention of states. No, I don't want a convention of states. That's trying to reform the current system. The current system can't be, can't be reformed. It can't. Mark Levin, you know, propagates that. He says, okay, we can do it at the local level. You can't do it at the local level. It's controlled by the federal government, which is corrupt. American people need to start a whole new government, not to try to fix something which is irreparably compromised and corrupt. Yeah, because now he's going after our banking system, putting in, he wants to have this socialist, outright communist, not even born American, uh, in control of our banking system. And she wants to abolish all private banking and have us go through the Federal Reserve. And, oh, yeah, if you have more than $600, every transaction you have, they're going to report to the IRS. And they got, oh, yeah, they have IRS agents that are now armed. So they have been moving against us bit by bit, and everyone is just not reacting. No, you're absolutely right. And the IRS spying on us, 
the so-called attorney general, thank God he didn't become a Supreme Court justice, but the rest of them aren't worth much either, except for Clarence Thomas. Uh, you know, terrorizing parents that go to school board meetings that are complaining about critical race theory, which is basically racism against whites or, you know, teaching that there's no difference between a man and a woman and being homosexual and transsexual is normal. You know, okay, people have, you know, can live their lives the way they want, okay, and, and that's their right. And, you know, if you're gay or you're lesbian or you're transgender, fine, you know, live your life, you know, but don't push it on other people. And don't teach our kids that that's normal. It's not normal. And this is where we are today, to destroy the fabric of the Judeo-Christian society. And you got to ask yourself this question. Is God now sending us a warning? You know, we've killed hundreds of millions of babies. Uh, you know, we're defiling his concept of a man and a woman. Uh, we are, you know, in a, in a, you know we're a drug-ridden society. Uh, you know, we're like lions at lion safari laying there like, you know, people don't want to work anymore. Uh, he's destroyed several civilizations in the past and started over. Now, he's maybe giving us a, a chance to either shape up or, or ship out. But I don't think that this COVID-19, you know, simply happened by itself. I think it's a warning to the, to the people, just like he sent a plague into Egypt, which caused the Pharaoh to let the Jewish people leave to set them free. And they set set out with Moses and finally found the promised land in 40 years. Well, we don't have 40 years. We have months. So with the grace of the Father and the Son, we better rise up now if you care about your kids and grandkids. If you think you can just be in retirement and forget about it, then you're as guilty as the people that are committing these crimes against the American people. You do nothing. Well... When Curtis brought you on, he said you only had 20 minutes with us, and we only have just a few seconds left. Um, your book is It Takes a Revolution, uh, Forget the Scandal Industry. And I'm, I was looking at all this because Sutton sent me a whole different idea on which to go, so I'm a little unprepared, so I apologize for that. But uh, there, I have been hearing whisperings of also of some states wanting to succeed from the union. Um, are they working with you in forming a new government? Well, again, the state governments are corrupt, too. So what I'm saying is that we, the people, will form a new government, and those people of good intentions, ethically and honest, and we'll vet them, can join us. And we do welcome the states to join us, but the states comprised of the people, not of the corrupt politicians in state government. Now, if there are you know, people that want to join us, I mean, I've been favorably disposed so far of Governor DeSantis in Florida, that's my home state, he should leave the Republican Party and join what we're doing, the Party of the People, because his Republican Party will attempt to destroy him. They will not let him rise. Even Trump has threatened DeSantis in the last week or so. Trump you know, thinks he's going to be president again. He did good things for the country. I supported him. Uh, we were in effect his law firm at Freedom Watch, but his time has come and gone. And we must recognize that. It's now up to us, the American people, to rise up. Trump is not the political messiah. We, there's only one messiah, and there's only one father, and we must now do it for ourselves. So that's where we are today. And uh, we thank Trump for what he did, and I wish him and his family well. But we now need to move on by ourselves. 
Well, Larry, it has been a pleasure having you on. Your book, It Takes a Revolution to Get the Scandal Industry. There's a link to Freedom Watch on the show here. So as people listen to the podcast, they can go in and find out more about what you're doing. Thank you very much. It's my honor to be on your show. I wish I had more time today, but I have a big legal brief too later today. <laughs> God only knows what the federal courts will do with it. <laughs> We're trying <laughs> in any of it. All right. Well, good luck. Good luck. Larry Clayton. Thank you. God bless you. Clinton. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Uh, check, a, check out Larry at Freedom Watch. There's a link on the show page. Click on it and you can learn some more. Um, all right. So we got uh, Heritage calling in in a few minutes. They'll be calling in about another 10 minutes, Curtis. So let me go into my pile of magic stuff here. Uh, we were talking originally about this, this legislator in Pennsylvania that wants to create this law uh so that if you hit the age of 40 or you have three kids, um, they want you castrated. <laughs> they want you fixed. Oh. And Was it going to call it the Bobbitt Law? <laughs> uh, uh, oh, jeez. Oh, here goes the jokes. And then if, if someone finds out or, or knows that you did not get yourself circumcised, not circumcised, get yourself fixed, get yourself snipped, they can collect a ten thousand dollar reward if they turn you in, and he's going to call them scofflaws. Those who have not complied with the statute within the allotted time frame, the proper authorities will arrest them for scofflaws. Can you imagine this? It's it's they they are forcing us to wear masks all the time. They are forcing us to get vaccinated, and now they're going to force you to have a vasectomy. I mean, yes, where like is sci-fi it? Sci-fi movie. It's one of those um, it, Stephen Stephen King um, special special epics, uh, and it's being played on a live stage. It is. It, it, you you really can't make some of the stuff up. It gets crazier and crazier and crazier as you go along, and you know it, if you're pro-choice, it's my body, my choice. But if you're pro-life, suddenly, no, it's not your body or your choice. Or if you're anti-vaccine, it's not your body, it's not your choice. And now if you're a, a man that is fertile and you've had three kids and you've hit the age of 40, it's not your body, it's not your choice anymore. And that's the attitude. The law for thee, but not for me. And, you know, I, sometimes I just, I just shake my head and Larry was talking about corrupt judges and this was recently Adam Casalino uh, in the Patriot Journal wrote about this Uh, there have been 131 federal judges caught breaking the law they ruled on cases where they had a financial risk and you wonder Mm. why we have so much trouble uh, with the courts Uh, the 131 federal judges oversaw court cases involving companies in which they or their family members owned stock, according to a new investigation. Those judges violated U.S. law and judicial ethics as they failed to recuse themselves from a total of 685 court cases in which they may have had a conflict of interest. While nothing prohibits judges from holding stocks, the Code of Conduct for Federal Judges requires that they recuse themselves given any financial interest in a case or ownership of a legal or equitable 
interest, however small. That's so pretty bad. What happened? To that? Was well, there any cut? At this point, not yet. At this point, right. not yet. But this has just been recently exposed, and of course, you don't hear it on mainstream media. Um, this article does not name the judges, and I wish it did. But maybe that's more to come out because this originally appeared in The Hill. So I'm going to try to put this aside and remember to follow up on it to see to see uh, where that goes. So, and oh, by the way, another body dropped around Hillary Clinton. And of course, no one's talking about this. Um, mm. This happened Which last party? month. Uh, I'm looking for this guy's name. Uh, Alright, hang on a second. I'm, I'm looking for his name. Just bear with me. Where is... Um, Christopher Sign. He was found dead by Hoover police in his South Ter- his Scott Terrace home. Um, it's being investigated as a suicide. But the people that know him said he exposed Hillary Clinton. Um, what, what did he get her on? I was reading this just real fast. Um, oh, about the meeting on the tarmac between Bubba and uh, uh, Attorney General Lynch. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he exposed that. This He's the reporter that broke right. that story. Yeah. And they said this guy was a real go-getter. He was very vibrant, a very much alive person, and he was the one that broke the story. And he was he was the lead anchor. And it, they said it was not like him to commit suicide. So another body Uh-oh. mysteriously drops around the Clintons. Well, did they mention his age? 45. Very young. Wow. Good-looking guy. Likely. He had a long life ahead of him to look forward to. Mighty suspicious. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Now, um, Larry Clayman had mentioned about to... the southern border. No, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, you have to wonder, you know, where the Clintons have been. They've been awful quiet. You know, with this Jeffrey Epstein thing, it seems like everything's quiet. Like the nation's mm-hmm. almost forgotten about that. Been swept under the rug. Let's move on. You know. Well, I don't even hear probably what... about the Me Too crowd anymore. I mean, one time it was like every other week, more women were coming out. You know, to um, talk about their experience with some of these Hollywood types, um, directors and. And and in other you know areas, but all that's quiet down too. Well, that's because Trump's not in office. Trump's not in office, mm. so they don't have someone to to complain and yell about. Instead, you've got brain dead Joe, and uh, we've got a huge caravan, and the numbers vary uh, according to how many are there, and uh, possibly an army of sixty thousand illegal aliens mostly Haitians. Um, And this was only yesterday that this was out on the Western Journal. And what they're saying is the leader of the migrant caravan 
says nothing will get in his way of making it to the U.S. He said we are ready for war. This is an invasion, folks. This is an invasion. This guy is a dual citizen of Mexico and the United States. He's the director of the leftist advocacy group Pueblo Sin Fronteras, People Without Borders. The person's name is Irino Mayaka. And, and he's, he's the one that said that they were ready for war? He's the one that yep. said that? Yep. I wonder what he got in mind. Yeah. Who he want to take on, a Marine, an Army, or what? <laughs> well, uh, Mexico recently started intercepting the caravans. Um, so they're trying to slow them down. At least they're trying to do something. Uh, it's better than nothing. But he's this guy is vowing to come through. With papers or without, we're ready for war, is what he says. Because I, I thought the Supreme Court just reaffirmed the uh, a ruling that um, during the Trump administration that these folks have to be processed um, outside of the United States first, like in Mexico. Right. right. And you're telling me that yeah. the Joe Biden administration is, are ignoring the Supreme Court? Wow. Oh, that wouldn't Pretty happen. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this guy turns around, and he, this this is bold as brass. He said, he adds in, if the National Guard comes and they're cowardly enough to beat women and children, let them prepare because God's hand is with us. This is scary, folks. This is really, really scary when it's heading our way. I'll tell you what else is scary. The number of people who are quitting, resigning, retiring, whatever, because they don't want to take the vaccine, you know. And um, you kind of wonder what's going to happen to those services, but all these qualified people leaving their fields. And and there's police are doing the same thing. They say, hey, we don't want to take this. We don't want to be forced. So I'm going to retire or I'm just going to find another job. Well, this, you know, this is so, even so scary. We also have people leaving the military because they refuse to take the jab. Um, you oh, have yeah. people leaving the medical professions. You have people leaving education because they won't take the jab. You have people being fired because they won't take the jab. We, ha- we have a job market that is growing bigger and bigger and bigger by the day of vacancies because of being yep. forced to take a vaccine. And it, it, it's getting crazy out there. And if... if you need a medical help, and you go to the hospital, instead of having a qualified doctor or nurse, you may have someone from the National Guard tending you who knows nothing about medicine. And this is what we're facing. This is what they're doing to us. So, well, as you know, in a socialist society, you, have, you can't have a middle class. It can only be the lower class and the elite. So this is... I guess the best opportunity to destroy our middle class because, I mean, in my city here, and we're a small rural town, our restaurants cannot be open, you know, any longer than 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon because they don't have anybody to, to, to do another shift. They don't have, you know, cooks or anything. So it's a wonder that they, they can survive off of just almost a half a day 
both of them work. No, they can't. They're just, they're just treading water. They really can't. And it's like that everywhere. And if you notice, if you go to grocery stores now, you see more self-checkout lines because they can't, can't get cashiers in there. And that's you just true. see more and more self, self-checkout. Walmart is almost nothing but. If you see two or three cash registers open with someone working them, that's a lot. That is an awful lot. But, uh, Curtis, i got to step away for a split second here. So you carry on for me. I'll be back in just a few minutes, okay? All righty. So, and Curtis is taking over. As, all right. So as we were saying, the job market is, is to the point where, like Andy said, these small businesses are treading water. Um, and I don't think they're going to survive too much longer because of the tax um, taxes that are going to be coming forth um, that's going to bring them finally under. I mean, it's it's like how can they, they do this to um, a country that was the world's superpower? You know, these people in Washington. I mean, do they not have a love of country? Well, of course not. And... and if they did, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing now. I believe, like most of us already know, it's all about power. It's all about controlling others. It's all about enriching themselves at the expense of um, the rest of us. And I don't agree with everything our guest Larry uh, was saying, but we do have to... Um, think about becoming more proactive and more involved in our our society and, and local government and to keep an eye on what's going on at the state and federal level. I do believe that if enough of us, you know, get together and make a lot of noise, they will listen because every politician is interested in, you know, being reelected. And if it's just maybe 20 or 30 people screaming, you know, they, they can ignore that. But if there's like three or four or 5,000 of us, even 10 or 12, they're going to take notice of that. And um, I just wish we would, you know, be more vocal. I know that it, it's, it's hard to do this in this, this day of the cancel culture where you're being um, censored on um, Facebook and all these other social media platforms. I mean, myself, my latest book, Truth Versus the Democrat Party, you can't find it anywhere because I can't find a distributor. It's been it's been um, banned, basically, is the term, by, by distributors, online distributors like, like Amazon, Barnes and & Nobles, and, and there's like about eight others that um, rejected this book because um, they don't agree with the contents, which is it's nothing but the truth and the history of this country. And and uh, sad that we've gotten to this point where it's like we're living under Nazism. But I, I'm a little more positive, and I believe that we can get out of this and we can reclaim not just our country, but our schools and our dignity and our world standing. Well, Sounds like well, Curtis... Back. 
Yep, Curtis, I'm back. And I believe we have our next guest in on the line. Um, I do hope this is uh, David Ditch. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. David Ditch with the Heritage Foundation. He's the policy analyst of the Grover M. Harriman Center for the Federal Budget. And, oh, my goodness, Mitch McConnell, what are we going to do with this man? I mean, I I just want to put him and Lindsey Graham in a boat and send them over to some socialist country. Get them out of my hair. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I was wondering how the whole thing would play out, and it just, it was such a fizzle. Yeah, I mean, not even much of a fight. Not even much of a fight. Oh, we'll, we'll give you until, you know, December, and then maybe we can work something out. But, you know, they're hoping that come Christmas time, everyone's going to be so involved in the holidays, we're not going to pay attention. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's not ideal. I mean, having you know, between the debt limit and funding the government, um December is going to be the, the early part of December is going there's going to be a lot at stake and yeah it's really important that the the public not get not lose track of what's going on. Absolutely. Now um Betsy McCall was on Newsmax yesterday and she brought with her the bill and she had all these little post-it notes on there you know marking different sections of it. And when I started listening to her to some of the stuff that is in there I'm going, oh, my goodness, Um, you're going to get a tax credit if you buy an electric car, but you're going to get a larger tax credit if it was made in a union uh, uh, shop. And the same thing with your air conditioning unit. You get a nice rebate if you replace your HVAC system. But if it's made in a union shop, how much of this bill was written by the unions? And there's a special uh, tax disc rebate if you pay union dues. <laughs> it used to be the song that I remember from the 60s and 70s, look for the union label. It was like made in the USA. But the second you look for the union label, run for the hills. But they have their hands throughout this whole entire bill. But it, it, this bill covers uh, welfare, immigration, taxes, energy, families. These used to be standalones. Instead of having this massive 2,500-page monstrosity, it used to be one at a time you did it. Whatever happened to that? And it, it makes it so difficult to criticize the bill because you simultaneously have the, the top line, which is so much spending that most people can't wrap their heads around it. So it, it, which is, by the way, over $27,000 for every household in the country. They're going to be spending $11,000 a second over the next decade. So that's the top. But then you also need to look at the fine print, look at all these hundreds and hundreds of different programs, like they want to spend $25 million on conservation of fish in the desert. They want to spend $25 million on training, on 
non-discrimination and anti-racism training at the Department of Health and Human Services. They want to spend $79 billion, with a B, dollars to hire more IRS enforcement agents to harass small businesses and the general public and shake them down for money. Yeah, but you also have Biden has nominated this woman. I believe she's from China. Actually, uh, she's commu- pure communist, but she wants you to lose your personal bank account and bank with the federal government. That's going to work out real well. And oh, by the way, if you have more than $600 in your bank account, then the bank has to report to the IRS every transaction you do. That's just to, to find the tax sheets. 600 bucks. Yeah, 600 bucks is not going after Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. That's going after everybody. This, this, this monstrosity, I mean, people have no idea what is in it. And we're only just starting, starting to find out. And that's why it's so important. Number one, it's really important that the general public make their voice heard, let their legislators know that this is no way to try to govern a country. They, you, for, Even if someone is on the left, this is no way to try to pass legislation. There's all kinds of landmines and mistakes in this bill and mistakes that you can't even tell from reading it that are guaranteed will come out after the fact. Then you look at the fact that this would massively centralize power in Washington, D.C. It's going to give – I mean it's almost impossible to count how much, how many different ways this money gives handouts to left-wing activist groups. It gives – it earmarks countless billions of dollars for federal bureaucrats to implement the program and to micromanage the economy and to dig into people's businesses and lives. This would be, I think, far more transformative in the wrong sense than Obamacare was, and yet it seems to be receiving a fraction of the attention that Obamacare did. Oh, but we're so mean. We don't want you know the poor people to have any money. So you're not going to pass the bill. You're being mean. You got to raise the debt limit. Come on. We've got the money. This isn't going to cost us anything, is it? That is something that's absolutely driving me crazy. The president <laughs> decided. He. I, I don't know whether it was deliberate or more likely it was a slip up when he said the bill doesn't cost anything. Because if you, if you squint and you turn your head a certain way and you believe in – use a little bit of fuzzy math, they say the bill doesn't add to the debt. It does. Every nonpartisan analysis of the bill says it adds a tremendous amount to the national debt. But then to say that that means it doesn't cost anything would be like saying – if I emptied out my bank account, if I emptied out my retirement account, and I used it to buy a Lamborghini, that would mean the Lamborghini didn't cost anything. But everyone with one iota of common sense knows that that's the opposite of the truth. 
Well, that's what they're doing. They've emptied out everyone's bank account, and then they're going into other pockets, which have nothing left in them. But I, did I hear this right or wrong? But if you're a, a pig or cow farmer, um, you're getting taxed for each head or, or your bovine or ovine? That's something that's been – I've seen that reported a few places. I think it maybe was considered. It's not in the actual text of the bill as it currently stands. But something that we need to be aware of is that before this legislation goes for a vote, it's going to be subject to last-minute what are called wraparound amendments, which essentially is a way of saying that leadership takes the entire bill. They can write it practically however they want. They slip in whatever they think they can get away with. And then they say, okay, everyone, you've got a couple hours or maybe a couple minutes to read through the whole thing and make sure that you're okay with it before we vote. Sometimes not too much gets slipped in. But I have seen a lot of discussion, especially related to taxes, that there are things that they think are too politically sensitive, things that might affect the agricultural industry, things that might raise energy prices. They don't want them right now because they think it would make it too unpopular, but they might try to slip it in at the last minute. Wow. Wow. Talk about Nancy Pelosi's famous line, you've got to pass it to know what's in it. And that's exactly what this is. You've got to pass it to know what's in it. Now, did you read this whole entire thing? I did what I could. I went into the document and I looked for the dollar signs. There are about 1,500 dollar signs in the bill, and I used that to try to find what exactly are they spending on and what are the things that stand out as being a little bit suspect. At the same time, there's plenty of programs in there that don't even specify a dollar amount because they're creating new entitlements and they're saying essentially the federal government will spend whatever it takes to fulfill this benefit program. And even though these bills were originally drafted in committees weeks ago, we still don't know how much this thing would actually cost because the accountants at the Congressional Budget Office are still crunching the numbers and they've been overloaded because of how obscenely huge the bill is. Wow. And I mean, I started printing all this stuff out and I didn't have enough time to read everything. But uh, I mean, I'm looking at all the stuff and it's like, how do you how do you actually come up with half the stuff? It's, it's almost as if they said, hey, listen, we're going to put a spending bill together. Give me some of the craziest things possible or your or your biggest wish list. And we're just going to tack it all in. Is there any way we get them to actually split this bill down? into smaller ones just so that we can start analyzing? Because you wrote in your article, it would take a person at five minutes a page, 202 hours to read the entire thing, and they want them to do it in less than 72. This is crazy. The, the thing is that they, uh, 
because they don't have big majorities, because the American public never empowered them to pass a far-left wish list, the best they can do is pass a couple bills over the next two years, literally two major bills, using the process that would let them get, get it through the Senate with only 50 votes. Rather than saying, okay, let's pass what might be sort of center-left legislation, stuff that everyone can agree with that doesn't go absolutely hog-wild. But no, they have allowed the Bernie Sanders of the world, the AOCs of the world, to run the show. They're the ones who are saying that we need to spend every penny that they can suck out of the economy and use it to empower these radical activist groups and subsidize everything under the sun and destroy untold millions of jobs in the process with the tax hikes and that's why so many of that's why so many of the dwindling number of less radical democrats in both chambers are balking at this and that's why they're struggling to pass it if they'd written something that wasn't absolutely insane it probably would have already passed Mm. Hey, they've thrown so many things in there. They are obsessed with this word equity. And and I was reading the articles about some of the stuff in there. Um, special treatment for disadvantaged groups, uh, such as increasing the number of female truck drivers. All right. Uh, also, the Hyperwoke Digital Equity Act, which expand, expands Internet access to prisoners. Now, all right, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're behind bars because you committed a crime. Oh, well, it might have been cyber stalking. Uh, so you're going to give them a computer anyway so they can continue the criminal activity with access to the Internet. Brilliant. And they also, in, so, that, so that's in, they managed to sneak that stuff into the infrastructure bill, which is why, you know, we're all, we're all looking at the big $3.5 trillion bill they already snuck plenty of stuff into the $1 trillion infrastructure bill that the House could vote on almost at any time and send it to Biden's desk. That's bad news. The big $3.5 trillion bill includes, and I wish I could make this up, $4.6 billion to try to get jobs for quote-unquote ex-offenders that we tend to know as criminals. $4.6 $4.6 billion. <laughs> I mean, it, it, like you said, you can't make some of this stuff up. I mean, they also uh, want, in, you mentioned ahead. equity. They want to spend $3 billion on what they call tree equity. In other words, that there are some, some communities that don't have as many trees as others so the federal government needs to pay to have trees planted there. They want to spend $1 billion on equity for electric vehicle charging stations, even though poor households can't afford electric vehicles to begin with. But they want to try to make it look like less of a handout to the rich. So how are they supposed to buy these electric vehicles? Oh, wait a minute. Tell me, there's something in the bill for that. They give out some generous tax credits, but 
it's still not nearly enough for how expensive the cars are. It still means no. that the vast, major- the vast majority of those subsidies are still going to be going to the top 10%. Oh, but we're not supposed to pay attention to that because, in theory, the bill raises taxes on higher-income households. I mean, it's, the number of times that this bill gives with one hand and takes with the other, all in the name of shoving as many parts of the country as they possible in their favored direction, trying to micromanage decisions for household, decisions for businesses. Like, they want to raise taxes on businesses and then spend billions of dollars on bureaucrats at the Small Business Administration whose job it is to help businesses. So you're going to tax businesses to pay for helping businesses. I think they'd be better off just keeping their own money and helping themselves, but then I guess I'm not a member of Congress. <laughs> no, no. Now, if, if the House does pass this, which looks like they probably will, um, what's its chance of actually making it through the Senate? Because you've got two Democrats I don't think are going to vote for it. I don't even know that it's going to pass the House for sure. All of the attention, all of the heat is being directed at Senators Manchin and Cinema, but there have been a handful of House members who aren't happy with the size of the bill, both in terms of how much it's spending and how big it is. And there are several, supposedly several senators who are keeping their mouth shut, trying to sort of duck and cover, but who, given their druthers, don't want anything to do with this monstrosity. I think what's likely to happen is the bill ends up getting shrunk by some dollar amount, which would then require them to get rid of a lot of programs and cut back on some of the entitlements. But it isn't clear whether then the progressive wing, the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs, would be comfortable because then to them it would be too small. It wouldn't be enough of a power grab for their liking. It also isn't clear whether Senator Cinema would be comfortable with a bill that maybe spends less but still has about $2 trillion in tax hikes. So they've got to really thread the needle to get any version of this through. Oh, wow. So the fact that Mitch McConnell uh, raised the debt ceiling it does not help it at all then. It just shows he capitulated. No, it, it Giving the the debt ceiling increase definitely helps them, but it doesn't help. It doesn't resolve their the thorniest problems for them. And that is all the additional uh, pork that's been put in here, which Nancy Pelosi yeah. is not going to want to trim. Oh yeah, I mean there's there. You talk about Nancy Pelosi and pork. The, that bill includes <laughs> it, it includes two hundred million dollars for something called the Presidio Trust. I guarantee none of your listeners have ever heard about it, but this is a park and golf course group located in her home district of San Francisco. Why we need to spend two hundred million dollars on a park and a golf course in San Francisco is anyone's guess, but again just happens to be in Pelosi's district. Isn't it funny how that works? <laughs> and next thing you know, when she does retire from Congress, she's going to rename the, co- the park the Pelosi Park. 
They, right. I mean, if if they, if she gets that two hundred million through, they might as well. <laughs> oh, you know, I remember years ago when the deck clock hit one billion. I mean, but now it's like, hey, you know, don't even blink anymore that we're up in the trillions. And how many years will it take us to get out of debt if we were ever to have a responsible Congress and Senate? I mean, the sad thing is at this point our nation's finances are so far gone, the goal isn't even to pay off the debt or even pay down the debt. It's just to stop the debt from growing faster than the economy. And even that goal, as small as that might sound, would be very, very difficult because of how quickly spending is growing on the programs that already exist, which is why it's so vital that Congress not create hundreds and hundreds of new spending programs. Well, David, we're down to our last four minutes, and it has been a blast. I wish we had more time with you. Uh, Tom always sends me the best people from over at Heritage every week, so God bless the man. I love him. But people can find you at heritage.org, correct? Correct. Well, David, it has been a pleasure, and have a very happy and blessed weekend. You too. Have a great weekend. All right. David Ditch, check him out over at Heritage Foundation. He's got excellent articles that explains all of this, um, so check him out over there. Curtis, as I said, we're down to our last few minutes in the show, and we are oh, yeah. already booked solid for next week. Um, Matter of fact, I believe we're going to have Peter Navarro on next week, uh, as well as your friend. So it should be an exciting show. And so check it out, because I've already got the guests up on the show page for next week, but I, have, I don't think I have a title in there yet. I don't remember what I did. <laughs> I don't remember what I do. Well, I'm looking anyway. forward to it. Well, that's all we got for today. So I'm going to find my closing song, if I can get the mouse to move. Come on, mouse. I can't believe this. <laughs> What a time for the mouse to stop. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, bear with me, folks. I'm not crazy. And here we go. Gary Pecorella, Save America. I'm free for this land I've America. America, the home of the free, but there are people making plans to change America. They've no respect for her, but what matters most to me, that's why I stand for the plan, and I kneel at the cross. The friends I have loved and lost And that's me
With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. 